My name is Clint Ames, and uh, a brief introduction goes something like this. There's a number of different aspects of my life, all of which seem to um, play a role. I'm a former mayor and uh, counselor for the city of Chilliwack, so involved politically in, in a number of different ways. Uh, I'm also very involved in the creative side of life. I'm president of the Chilliwack Players Guild and also a musician and play in a rock band that's been very, very busy the last few years. Uh, also, um, I have uh, just recently retired from work, which uh, was involved supporting people with developmental disabilities. I had an agency that uh, uh, I founded in 1993 that worked with people who would uh, be receiving community living services throughout the Lower Mainland. And I, re I retired from that about five years ago. So there was that uh, vocation as well. Uh, for a period of time, I think it was uh, nine or ten years, I was also serving on the National Board of Directors of the Canada Lands Company. Canada Lands people would know in Chilliwack and other communities throughout Canada as the agency that is redeveloping the uh, decommissioned bases around Canada. As well, it owns the CN Tower in Toronto and the waterfront in Montreal and Downsview Park in Toronto and looks after a wide range of both uh, tourism-related infrastructure and redevelopment of uh, military bases. So that uh, gave me a chance in that period of time to see a whole bunch of the country and uh, and be involved in some redevelopment projects, uh, much like Garrison Crossing in Chilliwack. That's, um, that's amazing. I find what you've done in your career so interesting because in one short word, it could be described as community. That's what you've de dedicated almost all of your life to. I'm interested to know what, how you got started in this. Where did this come about for you in your early years? Was community always a big part of you or where did that kind of come about? Well, interestingly, I was a military brat. My dad was in the military and he was posted to Chilliwack in about 1958. And so I settled in Chilliwack at, I guess it was four or five years old at that time. And it, it was unusual because military brats don't typically get connected with the community because they're thinking they're going to be moving on fairly soon. So there's often a tight group of people and then you move on to another city or another base. We stayed in Chilliwack. Uh, my dad retired here and uh, went to work on the base in a civilian capacity. So it's sort of, I guess it was about the time uh, I was in high school and started getting involved in theater in high school and began to really, really um, get excited about uh, the community of theater folk, because that community, the first production I was involved in, it, it just amazed me that community theater had, uh, among the people working on the show, there was the, the high school principal was there, a couple of prominent physicians were in the cast, there were, there were people from every walk of life were involved in that theater production a as a community theater uh a product. And I was just amazed at how that brought people together. And I really enjoyed it. And it made, it felt like a family. So that sort of first theater experience that I had was a lot of what sort of drove me there. And then as I began to kind of look outwards at the community, I realized that arts had played a significant role in my life. And I thought, boy, I bet you, you know, that would be a really great focus for a person to have, not necessarily professionally, but just personally as a way to build community through the arts and through the development of arts in the community. So that's kind of how it started. And then once you touch one sort of segment, then it branched into other segments like sports. And I was very involved in, in uh, minor sports coaching and refereeing and those sorts of things. And it just seemed like once you get bitten by that notion about building community, 
it doesn't seem to stop. And that, that's certainly the story of my life. Would you say that um, being involved in plays and developing that kind of more creative side of yourself was important? Were you an introvert previously and then you became more extroverted or where was that kind of impact I, on I, you? I don't think I was an introvert per se, but I think that I was, uh, I was very much, um, I mean, in high school and you would have known this and anybody knows there's kind of the in crowd in high school and then there's the people on the edges and and I was certainly a person on the edges but in the high, in the high school there was a very there was a thriving theater department and a, a, one man who I'd always pay tribute to his name was Ray Logie and he ran the theater department in the high school and his classes and courses were all so inclusive that it seemed to draw this really broad broad group of kids there and and some of them would have been you know the the kids that didn't fit in anywhere but they seemed to find a way to fit in in that very inclusive environment that was theater and it really changed my life as i began to you know see the power of of including people and what that can do for folks just like me i mean my self confidence just soared when i was involved in those productions and i saw people who were, you know, in other situations, they were very introverted and shy. And But you get them into a theater department, you get them involved in a production, they just blossomed. And it changed their lives the same way it changed mine. I often think back of my theater experience and being uh, on stage, if you will, as the mayor in front of a crowd of people having to answer questions uh, on the fly. And I think that experience of uh, being raised in theater has certainly helped uh, and certainly, I've, I know other people uh, who were the same. Can you tell us more about that blossoming process? Because I find that so important that we find one way or another, whether uh, I've had guests who have been involved in the military, who have served, who have con kind of gotten that sense of responsibility or duty uh, through that avenue. I'm just interested, what did you see in terms of blossoming? Where does that come about? Is that having a role to play and knowing that this is your lines and if you learn them and you do it properly, that's good? Or, or what does that look well, like? Well, I, I think it had a lot to do with the fact that uh, the people leading that process, Ray Logie and, and others who were in leadership in that process understood the value of encouragement, no matter what they were looking at, uh, which gave you confidence. And I know that um, at that period of time in my life, um, you would uh, you'd get all this encouragement and praise from uh, the people you were working with, the and and the director or the leader who Mr. Logie. Right. And you would be, uh, and it was that praise and encouragement that created a safe space, which created a place where you could say, well, okay, I'm going to experiment a little bit. I'm going to maybe do something a little outside of what I feel comfortable with. And when you get praised for that, and you get people who understand that you can't say, stop that, you know, don't do that. Instead, say, that was amazing. Where, where did that come from? What do you, you know, why did you try that? And, and all of that. Uh, would just build these folks. And that's that's what happened with me in the first couple of things I tried in an acting role. I got so much encouragement and it became such a safe place that you began to experiment. You began to kind of reach out and learn more. And you knew that nothing was going to be discouraged, that you weren't going to get slapped down. You weren't in that kind of an environment. And I think uh, it was uh, one of the healthiest and safest environments I've ever been in. 
That's incredible because I think that that is one of the problems we face is we, I hear about people starting a new venture, trying to start a business, trying to do something. And immediately people say, that's not you. That's not the person I've known for 10 years, 20 years, your whole life. And we get so lost in other people's perceptions of who we are that we don't necessarily always reach our full potential because we don't have those people saying that's amazing and boy aren't we lucky that you're doing this rather than staying at home just watching tv and i think that that's so unfortunate when people miss out on that opportunity and i think that that encouragement opens so many doors for people well and i think there's a way to encourage people into realistic endeavors i don't i'm not saying oh you should just encourage people to do whatever they want that's chaos but you shouldn't say no you can't do that you should be saying okay how can we work on this together? What support do you need from me? How can how can we let you explore in a safe way what you want to do, what you want to achieve? And and we can put guardrails on and, and protection, but we're always encouraging instead of sort of you know, just saying, no, you can't do that, or that's a bad idea. Yeah, especially when you think of like, um, when you have like an employee or a student, and motivating them can be the hardest part, but it's just channeling when they are motivated. And like, it's easier to pull someone back than it is to pull them forward. And I think that so often people don't know what inspires them because they don't, we forget to ask people what, what gets you excited, what gets you motivated. Did you know that first class that this was something you wanted to do? Cause you've been a member, um, of the Players Guild for a very long time. Can you talk about that? Um, I, I think the, as I said, what, what continued to attract me to being involved in theater, and I went from high school to exploring the idea of having a, a career in theater, um, which uh, we, we can talk about why that was a failure. Um, but I, I think it was just that continuing, creating those continuing environments where people were encouraged that just kept me, uh, moving forward in that environment. And I thought, well, what a, if, if you could make money at this, it would be, it would be perfect. Now, the sad reality is that it's really hard to make money at, uh, doing theater in one way or the other, uh, because there's just so many people out there who want to be a star and want to get involved in professional theater and, or, or in the movies or do those things. It's such an, there's such an attraction for that, that the market is very small, especially at that time for a 20 something kid, um, with about as much talent as every other 20 something kid. You're, you're simply not going to, uh, uh, make a career of it. I managed for a couple of years to work uh, through a number of different theater companies and, and, uh, do a bunch of stuff in theater. But eventually I thought, I'll just keep this as something I do in community and then try to use my lessons to help build up other folks and build a community of community theater folks. That's incredible. That's the interesting part. Was that a hard decision to make to say, I'm going to hang this up or, or kind no. of put, put that? No, not at all. I, I mean, it's just, it's being pragmatic. You could struggle or you could start taking jobs that, uh, actually paid you money on a regular basis. And I, I mean, I went from uh, working with a, a theater company that was called, uh, interestingly, uh, Music, Dance, and Drama for the Handicapped. And it was, a, um, it was a government grant. And the group I worked with uh, were musicians, uh, actors, dancers, singers. Uh, and we traveled to a number of different venues throughout the Lower Mainland that in those days were called mental health boarding homes. So there are these huge mini institutions full of people with uh, psychiatric illnesses. And we would do music, dance, and drama therapy with them. 
And I was hired uh, because I had some drama workshop experience, and I played the banjo and guitar at that time. And so I could fill in that piece, and there was other people who filled in other pieces. And we did um, music, dance, drama therapy in these boarding homes. So there was an interesting crossover for me. That grant lasted a little over a year. But uh, sometime after that, um, there was a job came up working with people with developmental disabilities. And... I had enough experience that at that time that I could then uh, sort of switch over and begin working with people with disabilities. And the drama part kind of dropped off. I didn't, I wasn't doing that. I was doing other things in supporting them. But the same principles applied. You're building, you're encouraging, you're creating a sense of community and, and adding value to the individuals that have disabilities who typically up until that point in time were seen as having no value by a community. That is, that's hard to imagine in today's society because I've grown up always thinking that those people have value. When did that, was that the first interaction? Because you talked about how you formed an organization and that yeah. you've been involved in that work for a very long time. Was that your first interaction? Yeah, right after, um, and I'm trying to remember the year, maybe 74, 75, somewhere. That was in the last century. That's that's a fun thing to say. Um, where I, I started working and it was an organization in Chilliwack that folks who've been here a long time would remember was called Sunshine Drive, and it was a, a school and an adult workshop for people with developmental disabilities. And the workshop was supposed to be a place where lear people learn basic skills uh, in a number of different areas and crafts. And, and essentially, it was an activity program to keep adults with developmental disabilities busy. And uh, I began working there and realized um, pretty soon that the folks that I had in, had always imagined at a point in time had very little to to offer in terms of value. My job, I assumed, was going to be somewhat custodial. But what I realized after being there a very short period of time is these are fascinating people with lives that I would love to know more about, with skills that uh, don't get utilized and are hidden away from the community largely. The community was happy that folks with disabilities were being looked after, but they weren't integrated in any way into the life of the community. So very soon after I started working there in the 1980s, early 1980s, it became, um, everyone began working at, at integrating folks more into the community. So more things were being done in the community, and shortly after, major institutions in the province like Woodlands, Tronquille, um, these were huge, huge institutions that had thousands of people living in there, were being closed, and those folks were being moved to the community so that they could experience lives in the community. And agencies like the one I worked for at that time uh, were beginning to realize, wait a minute, we've, uh, we need to start building our community so that it will be more accepting of these folks and we need to be doing more in the community so that we can show the value that these folks bring to a community. So that was, that was sort of my 1970s through the 1980s uh, period of time. And, and that even transformed into uh, us uh, working on programs for employment for folks with disabilities, supporting their employment in the community. Uh, when I left that agency, I was the director of employment services. So my job was finding jobs for folks that typically had been in institutions and thought to have no value. And we had, we had uh, progressed to such a degree that we were now working with employers in the community to find jobs for folks. It can be so easy for us to look at the next problem and try and solve whatever the new problem of the day is. 
how does it feel to have watched that development over time where we realize uh, various communities' values, but in particular people um, who have different struggles or different worldviews than us, uh, to see us kind of go, we have like a custodial role for them and we're going to put them into these institutions. And now it seems like we've hit a point where we're like, they're no, they're, like, they're no less than us. They're yeah. just bringing something different to the table. And it seems like more and more we're realizing that. Was, what is it like to have seen that? Because as I said, I don't, I've been there for such a short period of like, I've always been told that those people play an important role and have something to offer. I didn't get to kind of see that that misunderstanding or that misinterpretation. Well, it is fascinating to watch, to have been a part of that process, because as you go through it, um, there were folks at that time who said, don't close the institutions. There were folks who fought vigorously to keep them closed because people wouldn't be safe in the community. There were people when we uh, began uh, putting in group homes in Chilliwack, uh, there were public hearings and neighborhoods came and rallied against having uh, a group home in the neighborhood, which was for people who'd spent their lives in an institution and could barely figure out on a daily basis how to get their own needs met, let alone uh, be somehow a burden in a neighborhood. But uh, it was different. And it it amazed me at how angry and frightened a community was. And it showed you uh, how separate their lives had been from people with disabilities. So, um, uh, but we see that play out all the time. And um, I sometimes feel like um, we can go back to biblical times and look at the way lepers were treated. And, you know, eventually leprosy was not an issue anymore, but it seems like every period of history we seem to have a new set of lepers in our in our lives that we have to figure out how we're gonna how we're gonna uh, solve those issues, and we don't seem to learn lessons. In the 1980s, it was people with developmental disabilities moving back into the community. They were the new lepers, and they were shunned, and you know they were unclean, and we had to keep those kind of people locked up. And slowly we broke those barriers down by simply doing it, not paying attention to the naysayers and saying, no, we're, we know this is going to work. Today we have examples of society's newest lepers, people who are homeless, people who are drug addicted, people who have suffer with the debilitating mental illnesses. Those have become the same sort of people we have to, we have to as a society figure out how we can find value in those folks and and recognize that value, exploit that value, and make them part of uh, our society. And um, and then we move from there. Uh, the LGBTQ community can be seen as separate from and are um, you know many people trying to say no 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 we we need to be inclusive of that group of people as well. And society is slowly restating the margins. Right. Our margins, when I was, uh, you know, starting work in 1975, the margins or the definition of what was a fully functional, um, uh, worthy of, uh, value human being was very narrow. Uh, and today those margins are much wider and tomorrow they'll be wider still. So, that process of watching those margins get pushed because there's significant pressure on the other side of them, but watching those margins get pushed is it, it repeats itself 
And that's the the wisdom I have that maybe you don't because of your age, but I've seen that uh, through the ages of watching society push those margins farther and farther apart. I think that that's why young people need to hear from people like yourself, um, people like Brian Minter, because we get we, sometimes when you're young, you feel like you figured it out. And so you have maybe an ego about things. You feel like, oh, well, how people did things back then was stupid. And if they just continued that way, they were just wrong for doing that. And it's like, that's certainly an easy um, pat yourself on the back kind of attitude. But to understand that we're constantly growing and evolving and, and reshaping how we see things and that we've gone through these processes before and having that broader context I think is so valuable because we we forget that so easily and we feel like um, like why haven't other people been taking care of the planet and we look at the past and go those people were just dumb for how they acted and it's like well if you look at like I think it was like a hundred years ago they did a, a research study and they said you couldn't overfish the oceans if you tried ever they didn't know that there was going to be like 8 billion people on the planet. Yeah. They had no idea what the world was going to be. And so these problems kind of come to us and then we react over time. And I think that that humility is something young people need to hold on to is that we don't have all the answers. We're going to make our own mistakes and we're going to repeat parts of history. And it's important to hear from people like yourself. Well, I think what I've learned is that the mistake we tend to make, and I've certainly made it in my life, is that I tend to um, – demonize the people I, that don't agree with me. Like if I, if I get it into my mind that now is the time that we need to integrate and include people with disabilities in the lifeblood and operation of our community, and that's a fundamentally good thing. If somebody doesn't believe in that, I tended to immediately dismiss and demonize. Instead of trying to work with that particular way of looking at the world, and and change it or or at least minimize the impact it might have i tended to just say well uh, you know i'm excluding you from what i'm doing and isn't it ironic that the way we would deal with an issue of inclusion is to exclude people yeah. and it reminds me of a of somebody who stood up at a seminar i was involved with uh, when we were talking about you know building tolerance in a community and and they said, yeah, we have to stamp out intolerance. And I thought, um, <laughs> you, listen to those words. And, and I think that that's part of our problem. Part certainly was part of my problem is that I, I felt like, um, we need to vigorously stamp out intolerance. No, we have to understand, uh, what brings a person to a position of not having the tolerance that's required for others to be successful and then try to work with that. And, uh, and it's hard. It's much harder. It's a harder way to do it. Absolutely. And I think that, that for me, that came in when I learned the term steel manning, which is the idea of taking the argument and maybe it's a, an elderly person who's got this outdated view and trying to see if there's anything to their points that we could glean from their incorrect perspective. Is there anything that would help us understand the issue? Because the challenge is you get your perspective on what the issue is and you miss out on those other people's that might have something. It might not yeah. be the correct response and the correct res perspective, but having that humility to just hear them out and trying to see, okay, if I was going to take the best of your points, what would that look like? Well, here, here's the thing. We talked about this in the very beginning. It's about feeling valued and included. And you're not going to change unless you're doing so from a position of feeling valued and included. And if we shun and exclude people's opinions just because we disagree with them, they'll never change those opinions. What they will do is they will seek out 
people with similar opinions so they can be in a place where they're valued and included. And that's what we have today is we have a whole group of people over here that band together and find value in that in that banding together and another group of people over on this side who and we're hardening those positions especially politically we're hardening those positions up and there's no middle anymore uh, and i'm thinking about the united states there's no middle there everything is hardened off and uh, and i'm not sure where that goes but that's the lesson that I would pass on is to say that we can't get there in anything that we do. We have to find ways to value what people have to say, even when we disagree with it, but find value in what they have to say and find value in them as, as human beings. And then we begin to build uh, something, build community. Do you feel like the problems of the U.S. have always come to Canada over time? Um, I worry about whether or not we're going to repeat the same kind of attitudes and movements that the U.S. does, because we have with mandatory minimum sentencing. The U.S. brought in a three strikes and you go to jail forever, and we started to sort of do the same kind of – do you worry about that? I, I Yeah, I, I don't think anybody right now should be using the United States as a model for their democracy. I think it's fundamentally broken. And so, I, yeah, I would worry about that. Uh, you see it, though, in Canadian politics. You see that people look at what's happening in America and say, well, that guy was pretty successful um, with that approach. Maybe we should try that approach. And, you know, we'll see. Time will tell whether that's, that's successful. I think in Canada, we have something a little different, though. In the United States, you're left or you're right. You're Republican or you're Democrat. You're liberal or you're conservative. That's all there is. There is nothing in the middle. And so when they begin to fight, it just separates and pulls apart. There's very little in the middle. But in Canada, we've always had three parties or pretty close to having three parties. And that's a great balancer because, um, you know, we have the conservatives who can shift from the far right to the middle pretty quickly and easily. You have the liberals who tend to try to, um, campaign from the right and govern from the left, and they've been pretty successful over the years. And then you've got the NDP, who more recently have become kind of the holders of some manner of power because um, they're keeping that balanced over from the center right to the left. And and, and I think Canada um, doesn't have 60% of its population who are ultra-conservative or 60% who are uh, progressive and democratic, uh, whereas in the United States, it's just about 50-50. You're, I, I mean, it's about 50% Democrat, 50% Republican, and and there's very little to claw in between there. Based on who comes, it's generally based on who comes out to vote, and so I, I, we're different because we have a different makeup and we have three political parties, and and I think that um, if. If the United States is a seven on the scale of zero to 10, 10 being as conservative as you can get and zero being as progressive as you can get, I think the United States is basically a seven. I think Canada is clearly a five. So I think we've got a long way to go to 
get like the Americas, but I, it does frighten me. Absolutely. Yeah. One of the questions I had for you, because I'm sure you've heard this, is people have this pessimistic attitude about politics. They have this mindset of like, my vote's not going to sway an election. Um, I'm, and I try and remind people, and I say it a lot, we vote with our money every day, whether or not you should support local, whether or not you support the local business down the road, or whether or not you support Amazon. And organizations like Walmart or Amazon, they notice when you don't choose them. They, they're yeah. trying to keep track of your spending so they know how much they're pulling you onto their platform. So we vote all the time, but there's often this feeling with so much of the population, and we talk about this a lot, which is like so much of the population doesn't vote. You've been involved in politics to some degree or uh, in some way or another for a lot of your life. I'm just interested, what have you said to those people who feel so defeatist? What would you say to those people? Well, I, I've got a great story. Way back in the uh, 1980s, there was a mayoralty race in, uh, in Chilliwack. And uh, it, it, there's some interesting history here. There was a sort of the old guard uh, and I was particularly interested in this uh, municipal election because there was a lot of talk about a cultural center as a part of the what was going on. And one of the the existing mayor uh, was sort of not too big on culture, but you know might be able to be pushed that way. And he was running uh, running against him was a, a single term councillor who was the president of the arts council and was really um, determined to have the arts play a bigger role in the community. And they were running uh, an election. And the uh, when the final tally was in that night, now it changed and I'll get to that in a second, but when the final tally was in that night, and we're only talking a few thousand votes because that's how many people there were, the... Um, the uh, fellow that I was supporting who was pro-arts lost by 10 votes, 10 votes at the end of the day. We were at his party, you know, his victory or defeat party, and went around the room and we found 10 people who didn't vote at his party wow. who said, oh, yeah, I never kind of got to. I mean, that's, I mean, that's a, an extreme example, but my God, every vote sends a message. Every vote sends a message, whether you're successful or not. Every vote is, is a message. And believe me, I've been involved at the deepest levels of federal, provincial, and municipal campaigns. And the people who go over those entrails at the end of the day are looking at every vote and they're analyzing what do those votes mean. And they're analyzing where they were cast and they're analyzing the demographics of that particular area, that particular neighborhood. And they're looking at those. So you may not think your vote counts because you voted a certain way and your guy or girl has never gotten in. But the fact of the matter is the people who are involved in government are paying attention to every one of those votes. And, you know, I can't understand why somebody wouldn't vote. I I get it. I get it on a I get it on a municipal level. And here's why. On a municipal level, you actually have to pay attention because there's no parties in Chilliwack anyway, and certainly there's other places there is and their turnouts are much higher than Chilliwack's. But in Chilliwack, in order to know who to vote for, you actually have to read, you have to pay attention to what they're all saying, and you have to then kind of sort through what you think and what they think. When it's a municipal or a provincial or federal election, pretty much everybody's either a, you know, new Democrat, a liberal or a conservative. So you need to actually have to do anything. 
you don't have to attend an all-candidates meeting. You don't have to read a thing in a paper. You can say, I've always voted conservative, and I, nothing's changed my mind. And you vote conservative. And often it's based on the leader. It's not based on who the local guy is. You probably don't even know who some of those folks are. But at the municipal level, it requires an awful lot of work for people to vote. So they often will say things like, ah, I can't be bothered. My vote doesn't matter. What they're really saying, some of them, is it takes more work than I'm willing to put into it. And yet, it's the level of government where you are the most impacted. Right? We just had a little chat around your neighborhood here, and what did we see? We saw a road that was at one time thinking about being taking a cul-de-sac and pushing it through to a main road, which would have changed the culture of this neighborhood completely. We saw a dog park. We saw walking trails. We saw uh, a little kitty park. Those are all things that municipal governments do. And that was four or five in the five minutes we spent just having a chat outside that you could name, not to mention the street that you're standing on and the water that I'm about to drink. Those are all municipal things, and those are all the things that when you don't vote for municipal government, you're missing an opportunity to have influence over. Yeah, I think of people and their role, because we talk about, and I've said this before, but we have this idea right now about our rights and we're very clear and people are taught at a very early age about their rights and I think that that's great that we have these rights enshrined but we need to teach people that those rights come with responsibilities. Um, when I was a native court worker, I'd have clients who'd say, my kid, uh, they come to me and they, they try and hold up a document and say that they know their rights and that I'm not providing this level of service, so they're going to call social services on me. And that's, that's a tough conversation because on the one hand, thank goodness that people aren't getting away with the mistakes and that this child is, is informed on, on the system. But at the same time, we need to tell people that these rights come because you have responsibilities, that you have a role to play in your community, uh, in your family, and that you have responsibilities to use these rights fully and properly. And I don't, I don't think we tell people that, because we talk about freedom of speech, and for some people they go, oh, not another talk about freedom of speech, because we forget to say that, that the whole reason you have that, according to brilliant thinkers from 100 years ago, was so that you can seek truth. And the idea that we would seek truth and not know exactly where that's going to lead us is sort of, it feels like it's lost on a lot of uh, the people that I know, at least. This idea that that is a constant striving, that you're not right on everything, that you have to humble yourself and go searching and be open-minded and listen, and but stand by values, stand by your belief in, in what other people can contribute, understand that you have duties to your family. Like, it seems like sometimes we want to flee from our home, go grow up, get a job and live our own life. But you have, your parents raised you. And so maybe you have a responsibility to them to make sure they're taken care of and that they don't have to stress about their taxes or uh, where they're going to get enough money for rent next month. Maybe you have a role to play with them and your children and your grandchildren. And that these rights give you the freedom to go and follow through on your responsibilities, that it's not just a, I've got these rights and I'm just going to sit around and watch TV every day, that you actually have a role to play. Yeah, and I think it, it, you're, you've touched on something you could probably have 15 podcasts on, and that's balancing rights and responsibilities. I think one of the biggest issues that I get troubled by is the fact that we don't actually talk about what your rights are in places where we need to talk about those things, like school, as an example. We don't teach kids 
I don't think, and, and maybe times have changed, but I don't know that we teach kids what their rights are, what, what rights actually look like, because I see people spouting off all the time about, it's my right to do this. Well, no, it's actually not. You don't have a right to that. You have a very few limited number of rights that are enshrined in the Constitution and Bill of Rights for the country. They're very few. Most of what you're talking about is obligations that you share to be a member of this society, that you can exercise those freedoms, but it's done with uh, recognizing the obligations you have as well. And I think people want the rights without the obligations and the responsibilities. And then they ascribe things, they ascribe um, things that they feel they have a right to without actually having it. And, and I'm not saying I disagree that everybody should have some of these things, but you don't have a right to a place to live in Canada. It's not one of the enshrined rights. It's, but it is, I think, an obligation that government has is to make sure that people have the resources they need to have the basic things that keep them alive. But it's an obligation. It's not, there isn't a right that the government is failing us on that every person should have a place to live, or that every person should have a job. Those are, in fact, things that make society um, go, but we're kind of failing in the sense that what we're, what we're saying, what we're often hearing is things like, well, you, you know, people have a right to a living wage. I agree everybody who works should have a living wage. I agree with that with in my soul, but it's not an enshrined right. And what happens is then you get to say, well, everybody should have a right to a, lim- uh, to a, to a living wage. So that means the government's not doing something. That means, okay, it's not my problem anymore. It's the government's problem. No, it's not, it's not the government's problem. It's a structural problem with our economy. Yeah. And that is something government can influence. So if we can line those things up, we can find better solutions and we can work towards them. But it's just too easy these days to say, well, you know, everybody's got a right to this. Well, no, uh, that's not quite correct. So I think we need to do some rethinking around rights and responsibilities and some education around rights and responsibilities so that we can realign the structure of our society to get some of those things for people. I couldn't agree more. I think of, like, my mother and I, we, we relied on social assistance growing up. Um, my mother was born with a disability. And, man, how lucky were we that she, A, wanted to put in the work, that she was willing to do everything she could to be the best mother she could be. She was willing to go to any re- community resource that existed. So that meant Family Place in downtown Chilliwack, where the Cyrus Center is now. Yeah. And she took parenting courses there that were free, provided to her. Uh, Child care was provided yeah. to her. So she could learn how to support me, how to understand where I was at in my developmental stage. And she took advantage of the resources available. But it was work. It was not just hanging out. She put in a lot of energy and time and passion into wanting to be a good parent. So she, to me, she met the system halfway. So she can only do so much. She's got her limitations, but she gave a hundred percent of what she could. And then the system said, you know what? Fair enough. And we're going to meet you halfway with social assistance support, with community resources, with funding so that you can go in and enjoy some of your life. So it's not just constant stress. And I think 
we're so lucky to be in a system, but it's like the system is so much more complex than I think people realize because you need you need a thriving economy to take that money and throw it in to social programs. And it's not as simple as everybody donates $10 and it's as simple as that. It's far more complicated and yeah. those services start to get pulled back during recessions. And so... Uh, I'm not an economist, but what I see is during COVID, we spent a lot of money and we, we're, we're trying to make decisions to make sure everybody's taken care of, but we're spending a lot of money. And then whenever government is involved in spending, that tends to cause six months, a year down the road, inflation because the currency gets devalued. And so, but who's impacted when the currency is devalued? It's people on limited incomes. It's the very people who are maybe very excited about the, the money coming in. They're going to be the most detrimental impact at the end when inflation starts to hit right now when we're seeing inflation rising so the the money feels good in those early stages but it has consequences a year down the road where people maybe don't connect the two and so it's this very complex system is what i'm trying to say and to keep everything in line and working is far more complicated than i think anybody ever realizes because it's it's businesses involved and taxes and are involved on on housing and provincial taxes and it's so complicated that you can't root it down to just one saying one right and like everybody deserves housing. We can work towards that, but we need money coming in to do that. Well, I think our, our society is geared towards uh, things being dumbed down. And when there is something as complex as you've just um, uh, adequately described, whenever government spends money it doesn't have, it it has the impact of devaluing its own currency and creating inflation. I mean, every um, it, it's it's kind of sad to watch when you uh, when you have everybody agreeing we needed to spend the money that we spent during COVID, or in the United States that they spent during COVID, and now those very same people are lining up and saying, the governments, why aren't they doing something about inflation? Well, the inflation isn't something you do something about. It's already happened. That's why we have inflation. Um, so it's, it's, uh, they count on uh, people not being clever enough to figure out why inflation happened. Uh, but it's, it's, it's a fact of our life and it disproportionately affects people at one end of the scale, uh, and not so much at the other end of the scale. And yes, we have to do something about it. It's, it's, it's a little troubling to me that we don't seem to be doing much about that. The Bank of Canada is reluctant to raise interest rates. And that's the answer, of course, is to tighten the money supply, raising interest rates. That's what's going to change inflation. But that has impact as well on things like housing and, and all of those things. So it's a complex world. What, what you've touched on that I think is uh, most interesting is uh, I think one of the social ills that I see us guiding our way through right now is the notion of an entitlement. There's an entitlement mentality that seems to be out there that says we're entitled to a whole bunch of things that we aren't necessarily entitled to, uh, but we want to be. We believe that government should be providing all of these things for us. And in fact, uh, we're not entitled to very much in this life. Yeah. I couldn't agree with you more. And I think that I love those people who started from very little and worked really hard to get to where they're at because that's, those are the people I, I see myself in, in where I started from, in having teachers say, I don't think you're going to go succeed. I don't think you're going to do these things was because I see myself as that person who beat a lot of odds and that that isn't something where I want 
no challenge for it's it's again that tough balance because people need to face adversity to develop um i needed to have people tell me who they think i am so that i could go figure out for myself who i am and so that inspires me and when you try and remove all the struggle from people it, you miss out on what you are capable of overcoming like you're i think people are far stronger than they realize they're far braver they can be far more courageous than they are but we live in a time right now where those things aren't tested what you would do uh like uh, the subway downtown was robbed um when i was there uh the one by chilliwack senior secondary and i was standing there i think i was 12 or 13 and i chased the person down the road and even today, people are like, why, why would you do that? It's dangerous. It's unnecessary. But I want to know in times of struggle that I'm going to be the person that steps up. And yes, we might not be in hunter gatherer times anymore, but I want to know that I'm courageous and I don't want anything to stand in the way of that value between me and that value. And it's so easy to say, well, they were only going to take a hundred bucks and you could have lost your life, but then I would have died standing by my values. And yes, that may not be comparable to someone in the military dying for their country but it's that same willingness to stand by what you believe in no matter what and we've we're in a time where you can say that you want the best for people but do nothing but just post and just say i care about people look at how kind-hearted i am and i think that you have an obligation to go and face challenges and it's why i'd be interested in sitting down with like the elgar brothers because they like you think wow they must have so much money but think about the risk you have to take on a community to say you know what i'm going to like invest millions of dollars in this community and hope for the best because you can do all the tests and and simulations and focus groups of whether or not people are going to love it or not but that's your money and it's out there and you're taking a risk and the reward might be great but the cost can be your whole bankruptcy and so we don't give those people i think enough credit because we get jealous of where they have oh look at their house i don't think many people uh, who haven't been involved in starting their own business uh, understand risk particularly well. But let's not lose sight of one thing, and that is that there's another word we haven't used yet, and that's privilege. And there are people who have very privileged lives, and that privilege has contributed to them being successful. And that privilege has um, is something that has been helpful to some. And certainly, if you don't have that starting out, um, you're facing obstacles that other people wouldn't face. I mean, I. Uh, I'm sure the fact uh, that my gender and my uh, color were not a barrier to my uh, being successful. I'm sure that there are others in this community where those two things would be. And then if you throw in other factors uh, on top of that, that relate to privilege, they don't have the same opportunity. So um, I think, yes, Building your own business and, and taking risks and doing those things are great, but let's make sure that what we do as society is not have privilege play a role in that. So everybody starts out in the same place. Everybody, if, if there are barriers that are different for you than they are for me, simply because of where you were born or your gender or any number of factors, then what are we doing to get rid of those uh, barriers? Because that's the key issue as to why some folks are successful and others aren't. I took I I take a little offense when somebody says to me, "Oh, you're so lucky." I'm saying, um, 
no, <laughs> it wasn't wasn't a lot of it wasn't luck to get where I am now. And I mean, I'm not by any means an Alger brother <laughs> or in that position, but I'm I'm retired and I'm and and I have food in my fridge and I have a motorcycle that I can drive. So I I feel uh, I feel fortunate for those things. But that came with a lot of hard work. That came with taking risks. Uh, with a business that I didn't know whether it was going to be successful or not. That uh, put uh, personal wealth on the table uh, as a risk to do those kinds of things. It meant um, at the same time I was building a business, I was uh, the mayor of the city and uh, working 16-hour days so that I could look after my business and look after my family and look after uh, being the mayor. You know, there was a lot that went into that. So, no, I wasn't lucky. I... uh probably the lucky part was that the family would stay with you through all that when they hardly remembered who you were at times. But um, I'm sure that privilege played a role in any success that I've achieved. And it bothers me that I know there are people where that privilege doesn't exist and we're not doing enough to remove that. And that's where we should be focusing. Would you say, though, that you've lived your life in a way that took whatever privilege you have to pass it on and to raise others up. Because I agree with you, people do have privileges and opportunities that others don't get access to. Um, but I'd also say to your point that you kind of have to meet those opportunities halfway. You have to be open to the opportunity. But if you're a person who climbs up the ladder, and I actually just talked to Daryl Plekis about this, and then you look down at anyone who's not where you are and say, well, they didn't get there because they're lazy, they're stupid, they're not, they're not me and I'm better than them, then that's terrible. But when you take what, what opportunities and doors have opened to you and you've lived a lot of your career looking to make sure that those services are available, that opportunities are available because I, I don't know if, I don't know if we're at a precipice because I don't know exactly what people experience today, but to think that me and my mother had the opportunity to be in the circumstance where today I feel really blessed and I feel like I never knew the, the mayor of the time or the leader of the Chilliwack, um, community. Uh, center. I don't. I didn't know those people, but they opened doors that allowed my mother and I to live uh, a good life. And my mother, again, she did so much to get us there. But there were these behind-the-scenes people wanting to make sure that single mothers had supports. That there were people out there trying to give that leg up to people who wanted it. Um, I'm just interested in your thoughts on opening that door and helping others up because that's how you've lived a lot of your career. Well, clearly, I mean, that's, I mean, that a lot of the work that I've been involved in and a lot of the consulting work that I've done and certainly um, other aspects of what I've done have all been about that, have been looking at um, the community and looking at the broad community and saying who is disadvantaged. And uh, if, if a person is disadvantaged because they're just lazy, uh, then, yeah. Okay, live that life. That's fine. But a person, if a person is disadvantaged for any other reason, uh, the fact that they might have a disability, the fact that they uh, may be a different gender, the fact that they may belong to an LGBTQ community, the fact that they may be a different race than is typical in this community, if those are factors that are playing uh, a role in that person's success or failure, then that's where we have to... Um, that's where we have to focus our time. And that's um, in working with those communities um, 
through most of my sort of work life, especially communities of people with disabilities, um, the discrimination was rampant and, and based on false notions about people's value and what people could accomplish. But those, uh, that discrimination is still there. If you're a female and want to be uh, an executive in the community, in this community and other communities, you're facing a huge uphill battle. Um, if you're uh, from uh, an indigenous community, uh, in this in this part of the world, it's an uphill battle to get recognition um, uh, and to achieve to the same level that others wouldn't have to uh, fight so hard. So those are the barriers that I'm talking about that I think, you know, anything I see, that's where we need to focus our, our energies and our efforts. Mm-hmm. And And is, you know, there are people who say, well, that's, what do they call it, affirmative action. It's not. It's... It's um, uh, if if you think about uh, opportunity being in the the center, uh, many people don't get even get the opportunity to be successful because of those those barriers are all discriminatory. They're not based on any kind of reality. They're just discriminatory. So people don't even get the opportunity to succeed. Because there's a barrier there that that we have to bust through, and uh, absolutely. And so that's uh, that's kind of the work that I've done, whether you know, in uh, in my profession, and certainly when I was when I was mayor and looking at running a city, um, we were looking at are there barriers in our workplace uh, for success. What what are, is there glass ceilings for certain categories of folks in our community uh, that work at the city and and I think that's always been a focus of mine. Yeah, yeah. One of the big challenges that people don't think about or maybe is under talked about because we use the term systemic racism and I understand why. I just don't like terms that get thrown around willy kind of nilly and they, their context isn't added. You if you live on a reserve. The way the land is handled is completely different than when you own a house in Chilliwack or Surrey or something like that. And so you can't monetize your land the same way that you can monetize land in Vancouver or Abbotsford or something like that. And so there's a barrier to taking full advantage. You can't just start a business on your property. You need permission from band council and you have to be able to explain that. Then you need access to education. And where is the educational institute? Well, in the Fraser Valley, the closest one is the University of the Fraser Valley. So you have to travel from hope to there or if you want to do a different program it's ubc that trip as i've spoken to different indigenous people about is taking you away from your family and community and people who understand you and so that disconnect can impact whether or not you want to continue or when you're at the university whether or not you start drinking or hanging out with the wrong crowd or influenced by negative peers that don't want the best for you and so these are barriers that we might not think of but i think impact indigenous communities ability to develop economically well let me give you an example and let's not use an indigenous community but let's just say that there is a, a, a community within uh, Chilliwack that's underrepresented in the employees of city hall and and you say well we just we advertise our jobs I mean they're on they're on the internet and and you know anybody can apply we don't discriminate and then systemic racism is, well, is is discovering, well, that particular community doesn't have access to the internet because they live in a part of the community, let's say, that doesn't have broadband wireless 
or broadband internet. So they don't have internet. So they can't go online to apply for jobs. They don't actually know those jobs are existing. So yes, you're, you're saying this is, you know, we're, we're just doing the same thing for everybody. You have to go online to find the job, but the systemic nature of the discrimination is such that you haven't provided an equal opportunity for those folks because they don't have access to those, to that information. So you have to go through what you're doing and saying, okay, by only doing this, who are we discriminating against? People without computers, uh, people who may, I mean, uh, maybe whose reading skills might not be all that good because we're only uh, advertising in print. Um, and are there other uh, subtle ways that we're discriminating against certain groups of people because we haven't really given a good thought to how are we recruiting people into our business? So remember in my own business, we uh, uh, had a uh, project in the Langley area. And we would do a, dis- uh, a diversity audit every year of our employees. And we would say, um, who works for us? And if people, people were free to report or not report if they chose to, but who works for us? And um, is that, does that represent the community that we work in here? And there was a, there was a group, an ethnic minority that was not well represented in our workforce, and yet was heavily represented in the community. And we said, well, wonder why that is. And we set about realizing that the way we were advertising for new employees was not a way that was reaching through to that particular segment of the community. So we changed and advertised in a newspaper that was part of that community and within a year, we were we had a, a, a more diverse and more balanced workforce, and so it was just it, it's it's that hard work doing a diversity audit and saying does our workforce look like our community, and and making sure if it doesn't why doesn't it and and fixing those things that need to be fixed. I'm just curious, and this is a tough question. Do you think that that's a challenge for some people to look at people perhaps based on their ethnicity or their skin? It feels uncomfortable to, for some people to think about, I think, to think about, oh, we need to bring on this segment of the population or we're not representing this segment of the, like it can feel to, I think, some as an uncomfortable thing. I'm just curious as to what you'd say to those people. Yeah, I get that. I mean, it, it, it sounds like affirmative action, like all the bad things about affirmative action. But from our perspective, it was simply saying, we want our workplace to be as inclusive as possible. There's a group that's underrepresented here, and it's obvious to everyone. Why is that? Let's find out why that group is underrepresented in our workforce. We found out, and we said, well, let's change that. And we didn't go out and start recruiting, or we just said, let's change the way we recruit and let's see what happens. And the next year when we did our diversity audit, and we had 70, 80 employees. And next year when we did our diversity audit, we went, oh, oh, look at that. And the HR person said, yeah, it's interesting. We changed up and did this, and we were getting applications from that part of the community. So it, it, was, it wasn't done to say, you know, we need more. <laughs> we just said our perspective was we need our workplace to look like our community because then it will feel welcoming to folks. And if it doesn't, then we aren't being, especially a business whose job it is to build more inclusive communities. How can you build inclusive communities if you yourself aren't inclusive? 
I couldn't agree more. I'm just, I've heard it in regards to uh, policing because Indigenous people are perhaps underrepresented in policing. Yeah. Um, and then in the legal system, they're often underrepresented as judges and, yeah. and counsel. And so um, I've heard kind of those those naysayers. And so I just I wanted to ask about that. Can we perhaps talk about the different levels of politics from your perspective? Because sure. I find individuals like yourself fascinating because politics interests me just as like it's such a challenge to get involved in but let's let's start with federal and then we'll go into provincial and then we'll go into municipal and then you can share your kind of experience what is your perspective on how to look at federal politics in comparison because they're all so different and i've heard someone describe it i forget who but it's like um i'm a communist in my home because you want everybody to have all the things they need yeah. um and then as you kind of go out you become more and more conservative i forget who said that but they did a good job of kind of describing how you want um lots of services in your community but then you want the fiscal spending to be less and less as you kind of climb up the ladder how do you see federal politics well i i I think it was uh, – I, I have the joy of having a daughter who has a degree in political science, so we have often had these kinds of discussions. But I think if somebody said, if you're, if you're not uh, a socialist when you're 20, you haven't got a heart, and if you're not a conservative by the time you're 40, you haven't got a head um, – because I think we do, we get more conservative as we age because we have more, th we, we have more of what we need. Hopefully, by the time we start getting into our 40s and 50s, our lives are more settled. So we've got everything we need, and we get selfish. And we say, well, I don't want to give up anything to give those people who don't have what they need because, uh, you know, I've, I've worked hard for all this, and why should you take any of my money? And, and, and there's, it's called creeping conservatism, and, and that happens. And, and we, get, we get, as we acquire things, as we age, we get more possessive of those things and more possessive of what we've uh, we feel we've built for ourselves, and we're reluctant to let them go to other folks. When we're younger, we don't have as much, and we think those folks that have a lot more than we do should give us some of it, right? So, so it's not it's not unusual that when you you see a sort of progressive rally in Chilliwack, it's a lot of younger folks who are on their way up, and when you see. Uh, you know, a conservative rally, it's a sea of blue rinse. You know, it's it's the older folks who um, say, wait a minute, I worked hard for this and I want to keep it. And and politics in Canada is a lot like that when you look at the demographics of who supports who. Um, what I'm so thankful for in politics in Canada is that we have the three parties, as we talked about earlier. So there's a place in the middle for folks who are pragmatic, who say, you know what, let's just solve problems and, and let's build a, a really solid country. And yeah, you can have folks on the right who are kind of uh, a little out there. And, and we see evidence of that today. There's those that would suggest that the conservative leadership race is actually a split of two different factions within the conservative party. Uh, one that's a little bit farther right and one that's a little more moderate. And we have, um, we have that to some degree in, in the NDP as well. You have a very progressive a democratic socialist wing and you have a more moderate wing of there. And then you have that big melting pot in the middle that tends to win out in, in elections in Canada. And that's Canadian politics, that's the small L liberalism that has guided uh, Canadian politics. And it shifts, of course. I mean, right now, it's probably a little to the left, which gathered up some NDP voters. But when somebody like Paul Martin was involved in the Liberal Party and Jean Chrétien, it creeped a little to the right and kind of obliterated the Conservatives on the right. So wherever that shift goes, 
um, that's who's going to be in power, and the, everybody else is going to be kind of grasping. Um, I've, I've every reason to believe that if um, Jean Charest were to win the uh, conservative leadership, he would uh, create a much more moderate uh, conservative party. They'd take a lot of votes away from liberals, and they could easily form the next government. You know, there's some disadvantage, dis, or uh, not disadvantage, there's some... Um, I think uh, people are kind of disappointed in in Justin Trudeau right now. Um, there's lots of different reasons why they say that, and and I think he could easily lose to a moderate conservative party. But if the other fella takes over, Pierre, yeah, yeah. I think the liberals will. You'll see policy expand on the right, and they'll be talking about, well, we're going to have to reduce taxes, we're going to have to cut our spending down, we're gonna, you know, they're going to say a lot of conservative kind of talking points, and they'll shift over and grab some of that up. Um, that's what politics is in Canada, to me, has always been um, that shifting on the on the margins the uh, between conservative and, and liberals. The liberals, as I say, they campaign from the right, and they govern from the left. Uh, and that's the way they've... Um, They've always operated. The conservatives have campaigned on the left, saying, don't worry, all your social programs are fine, everything's fine, it's great, and they govern from the right. And it's that's Canadian politics in my mind. It's a fascinating world. Um, it's uh, a world that I was heavily involved in when I was on the board of Canada Lands because we were a non-agent crown corporation. So we reported directly to a minister, and um, we would sort of – be trying to walk that fine line between um, Quebec and the rest of the country because Quebec is always interested in investment. You know, what can the government do to invest in Quebec? And we were developing in Quebec and in Ontario. And so it was a, a fascinating world. But um, uh, I'm at one time in my life, I was very interested in federal politics and, and thought, you know, maybe that would be a, a somewhere I'd like to be. And then uh, sanity. Uh, re resumed and and I, I couldn't imagine such a thing these days but um so it it's it's sort of a far away thing to me uh, fair enough the thing i found interesting uh one of my old professors camden hutchison um who's my business organizations professor he sent us uh, he put a study on twitter that actually showed that people my age are becoming more conservative um in regards to Pierre. And I find that very interesting because it seems like he's leveraging social media in a way that we haven't really seen um yeah. politicians do in in Canada. And the only reason that, that gives me hope is because I hope that long form conversations like this become the new standard of how we figure out who to support and who not to is because those short thirty second debates, um I just don't know who they're helping figure out make the right decision well and i think we've lost uh, the notion that governments or when when people are campaigning they should actually put a real solid platform out there that tells me on the ground how it's going to impact me as a taxpayer and we don't we seem to have sort of we, we we campaign with platitudes not so much hard information about okay here's here's where we want to take um the taxes in the country here's where we want to you know those kind of things um they don't seem to be as prevalent. It's more, um, you know, we want to invest, uh, make Canada's largest single investment in affordable housing. What what does that mean? How how does that look? What so you know, unless unless you dig really deeply, it's very hard for people to kind of absorb what happens federally. And I I really think uh, federal elections now are just popularity contests. Um, 
Justin Trudeau is very popular, very young, dynamic in the beginning, uh, gets elected, gets reelected with a smaller, in a minority parliament. And, and he'll be, I'm, I'm certain his, his days are done and we'll probably have a conservative government because they're dissatisfied. So we're voting against things instead of voting in favor of things. We're, um, you know, it's easy to mark, um, Justin Trudeau with all the ills of the world right now. And, and conservatives will do that and he'll probably be on his way out and we'll have a conservative government and they'll be taken over by a government. We'll vote against them. We won't vote in favor of what they're doing. So politics at the federal level is, is sort of voting against things. And, and that's a bit frustrating. Yeah, because it's not inspirational. And I think that that's something hopefully we see in the next election is the idea. I don't. The trucker convoy was really weird, but the thing that the one thing that I can pull from it that I like is the idea that the Canadian flag should be something we're proud of. It felt like, and I actually, I'm proud to say that I had a recording before the trucker convoy saying that we don't have that national identity right now, that it feels like we're not all on the same page about things. And I was missing the Canadian flag as something we could stand behind and say, at least we're all on the same page. And we just, we go through so much that we lose that kind of identity. And so agree with them or not. I just think that we need that symbolism to bring us together. And here I'll disagree with you on this. And I will say that what offended me the most about the trucker convoy was their use of the Canadian flag as a symbol of uh, protest against the government? They were, they were. It's. It felt like they were saying, you know, we're standing up for Canada. They weren't. They were standing up for a very minor, um, you know, a minority of Canadians, less than ten percent, who were uh, feeling like their rights had been trampled because we were dealing with a global pandemic. And what they did with the flag was. It became a symbol of a minority protest that was violent and was uh, most people in the country did not support. And so they've now taken, like, you see people driving around with a flag on their pickup truck. They're not saying, I love my country. They're saying, I hate my government. That's what the, the flag has become a symbol of hate for government policy. And that to me, is sad because I used to have a Canadian flag out in front of my house and I took it down because I didn't want people to think I was part of the trucker convoy. And, and so now they've appropriate, they, they seem to have appropriated this, the flag as a minority protest that was violent and in many ways ugly. It was a symbol of that. And have they now, made it so that people like me can't put their flag out on their porch because I'm afraid people are going to think I'm supportive of a minority violent mob that was protesting vaccine mandates that actually didn't even exist at the time that they were protesting them. So I'm, I'm worried about the fact that they appropriated that symbol and how do we take it back? Interesting. I, I do think that we disagree because I think 
I like that the flag is no longer connected to the government because as much as they do use that flag, that is, as citizens, our flag uh, within the country. And so it does absolutely mean different things to different people. I'm not condoning uh, how the, the trucker convoy uh, in Ottawa behaved, but I think that that flag will always mean different things to different people. For Indigenous people, many Indigenous people don't see themselves ref- reflected in that flag, yeah. um, but you held it up proudly um, previous to the convoy um, because that meant something to you, but it had nothing to do with Indigenous issues or, or people. Yeah. And so I think that the flags and symbols will always, like uh, the cross represents different things to st- different people. Some Indigenous people who went to Indian residential school, they look at the cross and they don't see themselves reflected in that. They see that as the ultimate symbol of their abuse. Yeah. But for good practicing uh, real Christians, that's a sign of redemption and failure. And, and so these symbols, they'll always mean something different to different people. But I see like soccer moms, like with the flag, like I see just people from a vast array of worldviews. I see indigenous people with the flags. And so I see that at least we're having, maybe we're having the conversation about what the flag means again. And that's important to me, not whether or not one side, one faction is correct or the other, but we're trying to regain our identity and figure out what does it mean to be a Canadian? And when I spoke to uh, Scott Sheffield, who's a military historian, he talked about how many people don't remember our role in World War I or World War II or what those times meant. And so at least rehaving that conversation about the flag reminds us of what did we do during those times? Well, we stepped up as Canadians and we got very close to having World War II start back in Canada and we were going to pick up the fight from here. And and that's incredible sacrifice that we were willing to take on to fight against beliefs that we were against. I've got an idea. Here's how we can agree about the flag. I think we ought to step back and we ought to say, ask a fundamental question. Does our flag, is every Canadian reflected in that flag and if they're not why not and what can we do to change i'd be happy and i'm probably going to be burned at the stake but i'd be happy to step back and say if indigenous folks don't feel reflected in that flag that they feel that it's a symbol of colonialism rather than a symbol of a new nation that's built with a partnership between all the people that live here some that were here for 25,000 years and some that are be here for 250 years, what should that flag look like? I'd love to have that conversation. Yeah, I think say, they're actually doing that with British Columbia, right? They're talking about potentially renaming British Columbia, which is a big deal. And, and I think it's time. And, and this is interesting because 20 years ago, I wouldn't have. I wouldn't have had all of those same thoughts. I would have had some residual guilt and I would have had um, uh, maybe a different position than I have today. And why was that? It's because I've had the opportunity to be to feel included and valued in conversations about those things with Indigenous leadership in this community. Prior to that, 25 years ago, it, there was not that same opportunity to do that. So we sat in different places and, you know, shot at each other over uh, land use, over... Um, you know, roads and why weren't we doing this and why were we doing that? And there was no, there was no um, getting together and valuing each other uh, and the contributions that could be made. So people can change. Even old farts like me can can change their views. What does it take? It takes 
including and feeling valued, which gets us back to the very beginning of our conversation. Absolutely. That's why I like doing the conversations that way is because we get an introduction to you before we get into politics where maybe we feel simplified or misunderstood. Um, I'm interested to know what your thoughts are on what is going on in provincial politics. I recently interviewed Daryl Plekis. Um, He had some very interesting critiques of um, how policies kind of manage there. It seems like things are better. He was not a fan, even though he was a member of the BC Liberals, he was not a fan of how they were kind of um, behaving, how they were approaching things. Seems like the NDP uh, have brought a lot more peace to the position. Um, I'm just interested in your thoughts. As you followed provincial politics, I saw that I think you did uh, like a a show for the last election where you were kind of talking about how things were going to land. You predicted before Dan Coulter was elected that he was going to be elected. Yeah. Uh, how did that play out for you and what are your thoughts? Well, uh, I mean, there's, there's provincial politics in our community and then there's provincial politics. If we start with provincial politics, uh, BC is, a, is an interesting place and it has um, – politics has been predictable here for – since the 1950s with a – uh, with a coalition of anybody but the NDP and the NDP, and we're still there today. Uh, there was a time where there were more than one party in in, uh, in British Columbia, but we're still there. And what happens is there's um, if the NDP remains pragmatic and doing things that um, generally people support without getting too crazy in there, and and they can they can get um, kind of uh, crazy socialist and. If they stay away from those kinds of ideas, they stay as government for a long, long period of time. The minute they start being influenced by that kind of real uh, left-wing crazy part of their party, and they start bringing in policies that may, in fact, uh, drag uh, organized labor back to a position of power or may give in far too much to organized labor – or may try to do take over too much as government, they get themselves in trouble. And that coalition that's anybody but uh, the NDP uh, gets strong and they become government. And interestingly, they do the same thing. They, they act like liberals um, in the beginning, and they stay moderate, and they stay uh, focused on what's really important. And then the right wing of that party tends to start um, uh, getting stronger and then they start behaving in a more um, conservative way, and they start dropping social programs or really bashing um, organized labor or you know taking things away from organized labor or you know ripping up contracts or whatever it is, and then they get defeated. And it's always been a mystery to me that if you wanted to stay elected, just stay in that middle lane, stay as um, uh, moderate. Uh, and and you could be elected forever, but it seems that they're both victims of those parts of their party that want them to uh, move in particular directions. Uh, right now, I see John Horgan as pretty moderate as as a leader, but he's got that faction in his party. And you see, occasionally you see evidence of it rearing its head as they're starting to bring in changes to the labor code which are changes that were brought in by a previous government, that were changed by a previous liberal government that were, and, and that will drag them away. And, and uh, I think that John Horgan can win another election, but depending on when it's called. But Kevin Falcon is a real campaigner, and he knows how to bring the two parts of their party together, although he sits a little bit farther right than I think 
um, typical liberal leaders, certainly right of Gordon Campbell and right of Christy Clark, but he has a way of bringing people together in, in that party. So it, it will be interesting to watch how that plays out. And, and there was a time, and I can remember the 1986 provincial election, and I'll tell you why, because I ran as a liberal in the days when there was actually a liberal party. In, in BC, we got nine percent of the vote, and it was it was just just expressing uh, my opinions at the time. And uh, but slowly that coalition built back together because we had social credit, which was sort of the the right the coalition on the right. The BC Liberal Party was very minor player, and then the NDP. And um, shortly after '86, the Social Credit Party fell apart. The BC Liberal Party came up and became that group uh, on the right. So provincial politics in BC have always been that um, uh, two-party, anybody but the NDP coming together. And then in federally, you have, you know, it's interesting because the NDP can be elected uh, with a solid majority provincially, and the next year there can be a federal election in, in the country, and BC sends nothing but conservatives to Ottawa. So, you know, we have a we have a weird kind of a, a political demographic in in our uh, in our uh, province. But speaking locally, and Chilliwack is, um, you know, despite the, the fact that we sent two New Democrats to Victoria, Chilliwack's vote totals, if you if you want to call um, the center and right and the NDP as two blocks. Those have been remarkably consistent over the years. Remar- so the, to- the total votes for each yeah. side. Yeah. So if, if you take the anybody but the NDP vote and the NDP vote, which mirrors itself in, in the rest of the rest of the province, that vote total in Chilliwack has been remarkably stable uh, over the years. What changed this time a little bit was Dan Coulter got more than the average for the NDP uh, and that uh, there's no surprise there. He was a very effective and well-known school cha- board chair, and he, and so that gave him some extra oomph at election time. But when you look at the the fact that the right wing side of the vote was split, and I can't remember which riding uh, had which split in it, but the right wing was split: one by Diane Jansen, who ran as a conservative, and the other by Jason Lum, who ran as an independent. But both were um, especially um, Diane. She stole all the votes from John Martin. From John Martin and um, and Jason um, stole votes from Laurie Thronus, who was uh, tossed out of the party Dethroned. Be- before the election. And Jason stepped in, so you knew that that was um, that was going to split that vote as well. So. It'll be interesting to see in the next provincial election what happens because, um, you know, I, I know both Dan and Kelly and Kelly, um, I've had more to do with Kelly because she's actually on the committee that I'm working on and she's doing a remarkable job as a representative of this community. And, uh, Dan, same thing. So incumbents have a huge advantage. We'll wait and see. It'll be depend on, uh, who runs against them and, and how that all unfolds. But uh, I'm really looking forward to that because that, that will be fascinating. Do you ever give your viewpoints prior to the election to people? Give them, because when I saw how the lay of the land was going to look, I was like, 
there's going to be some vote splitting here. And I don't have to be a political expert to know that. I could just see how things were going to play out. And I think even when uh, Diane proposed running, people were like, you're going to split the vote. Is there like a lot of conversation? I'm just curious from your perspective, are there conversations that go on where people talk about like, if I do this, I might not win and I'm going to split the vote? Like, is that like things that people discuss prior? I think that everybody that runs, um, has their go-to people where they get it, where they get advice. Uh, I'm very busy during municipal election time with phone calls from people saying, I'm thinking about running or I am running or what advice would you give me or um, those sorts of things. I often um, spend uh, lots of time with various people who are running, you know, just giving some insight into what a campaign looks like or, you know, things that they should think about. Um, in provincial politics, somewhat less so because I'm not, I was never seen as a player in that field. Um, many of the people that, uh, were involved in running were people I knew, uh, some better than others. And I did, uh, and they did uh, reach out. Uh, some of them would reach out and say, I'm thinking of doing this. And, uh, <laughs> as you said, I, I said, well, you you know, uh, good luck. I, I think. You'll be splitting the vote, uh, but you know you never know uh, how disenfranchised people feel. Um, so you know you have to know that um, this is the likely outcome. But good for you. Yeah. And uh, the the other question I had, um, just because you have experience not only as a mayor um, but as a council member, Daryl Plecka said something that stood out to me as concerning. Uh, he said that. He never saw within his own party, which is the BC Liberals, someone act on the interest of their constituents. It was always for, is that going to get us votes in the next election? And that that was always the level of analysis people brought. You come from a municipal level, um, trying to hold provincial governments accountable and make sure that they're funding what they need to fund, doing what they need to do for the benefit of your community. How did you feel during your time um, as a mayor or a council member? Did you feel heard? Did you feel like these concerns that Daryl had were valid? Um, I'm just interested because I, I never want to paint one brush. I'm interested in kind of everybody's different experiences uh, during their time. Bud kind of described really, really quickly that he had received the same letter like 20 years previous when he was a commissioner with the city of with the RCMP in Chilliwack that he received like 20 years later as a council member um, and he was like I was able to know that because I had done the same request twice and know that I was getting the runaround and then he was like yeah. I reached out to Mike Farnsworth and said hey we got to do something here and he was able to push it forward but had he not known he would have been spinning his tires and not even realizing it so I'm just interested in your experience well there's two you're talking about two different things and first of all um, I've probably worked with I'm trying to think one two three four five six seven eight maybe a dozen different MLAs in the time that I was an elected member of city council. And there's two jobs that they have. One of the jobs they have is looking after constituents in the community. And I have to say that I never heard of any MLA in that whole time, whether they were a cabinet minister or whether they were an MLA, I never heard complaints from people in the community that said, I can't get anything from them. You know, I've got this problem. And they deal with a multitude of problems and the interface between people and their provincial government. So I, I never heard anything about any of those folks. And I myself have had uh, issues as a as a civilian uh, with the provincial government. And uh, any time that I have gone to an MLA, I've found them to be very approachable and and interested and and helpful. And and that's one level of job they do. 
The difficulty comes when you're trying to get the government to give you something as a municipality, because first of all, there's however many other municipalities out there asking for very similar things. So how do you um, effectively get your message to them? And it's very frustrating. It's very frustrating. And as a government, they're, as you say, their interest is where are the votes? Where can, you know, where are we going to make uh, the biggest impact with this kind of a decision? So if you're going as a community and you're saying, okay, I, you know, we need some funding for a, a hockey rink. Um, you've got to know there are 25 other communities that are asking for funding for a hockey rink. So you're hopeful that your guy or girl is uh, strong enough or holds enough standing within government that they're going to be able to actually even get that in front of somebody who's going to help make that decision. And so you're fighting up against other MLAs who have varying degrees of credibility. So if you're brand new and you're not a cabinet minister, you're not a parliamentary secretary, and you're going to your MLA who's that profile and saying, hey, can you help us get a grant for our... It's simply not going to happen because that's where governments make decisions, in my opinion, on where the votes are. And that's why you see um, certain areas of the province um, where decisions, and, and I'll get political here, I think the decision to take the tolls off the bridges was a really bad one. Um, I think we had, um, we had a great system in place. It did discourage people from crossing major bridges in uh in commuting, our, it would have added life to our roadways without widening all of those things. But the NDP government promised the people of Surrey that they would get rid of those tolls on those bridges. And that was a very specific uh, promise that was made to a specific region to get votes. And where did the NDP win that election? They won it in Surrey. All those ridings came together and said, we got to support the NDP because they're going to get rid of the tolls on the bridges. Wow. And the rest of us end up paying, you know, we're now paying money to finish paying off those bridges instead of the people using the bridges paying for those. So essentially, yes, government works that way. It can be frustrating. I mean, we've had at various times in the city of Chilliwack or the region, we've had cabinet ministers represent the riding. And sometimes that's an advantage because, you know, they're in cabinet where decisions are actually made. So you can get some of those uh, decisions in front of the right people. Other times we've had people who aren't in cabinet and it's few and far between that you actually get anything, but it's about relationships. It's, uh, one of the, one of the things that I was particularly proud of as mayor was that, um, I had to work with both, uh, governments. There was an NDP and a liberal government, and it was just as easy for me to get appointments as a with the NDP as it was with the Liberals to go and talk to people and get things that we needed in front of government. So you have to be nonpartisan. The, the more partisan you are as a local government, the less chance you're going to have when the other guys are in power uh, in Victoria. So Yeah, uh, you said something I really loved before we started recording, which was that um, on a municipal basis, you don't really know where their party affiliations are on the provincial or federal level. And I think that that was an astute observation. Well, I think the the real successful politicians in our community are people that you don't know um, where they stand politically because they can walk uh, in any hallway in Victoria or Ottawa without having a badge on them, like you're with the other people. 
Uh, so um, I can't tell you as an example. I, I don't know our mayor's politics on a on a provincial or federal level. I have no idea, and uh, that can be said for most of the members of council. I, I I have suspicions, but I I certainly don't know, and they don't. Um, they're not partisan when they discuss or have conversations. Um, and I think that that's a tribute to those folks because they have nothing municipalities are doing is partisan. There really isn't anything partisan about, about local government. It's all very pragmatic, real decisions. And that's uh, one of the things I really admire about our current council. Brilliant. Can you tell us what made you run for council when you started? And was that a tough decision? <clears throat> I mean, it, it's a tough decision because it's so life-changing if you win because you you go from being um, you know just another person in the community to being a person that lots of people know and that's life-changing for your family because uh, especially the mayor thing that was uh, that was quite different being a member of council you're a bit a little bit more obscure but you're still a member of council so it's it's a big decision because it does impact more than just you it impacts your family and for me, um, uh, it was really simple. There was, uh, it was a time in my life, and we're going back again full circle, when I believed that uh, the arts and culture in our community were getting short shrift with rec- other forms of more active recreation. So if you're a, a, a family and you have kids and you want your kids to play baseball, they've got a baseball field, uh, many of them, paid for by the good taxpayers of the city of Chilliwack. And they get to use those fields and and uh, play baseball. They want to play soccer. They have uh, any number of soccer fields where they facilities that have been provided for their use so that they can experience those things. If they wanted ice skate or play hockey, we had ice rinks for them to do that. If you wanted to, um, in fact, if you wanted to read a book, you could go to the library, which was provided. But if you wanted to dance... If you wanted your kid in dance or you wanted them involved in theater or music or any other passive recreation, it was expected that somehow the cities weren't going to fund facilities for those because that's somehow different. And I didn't see it that way. I thought that we should be spending an equal amount of our resources to develop uh, passive recreation and active recreation. In fact, uh, there could be a strong case to be made that uh, active recreation is good uh, to a certain point, and passive recreation becomes more important as people age because they're not interested in more active. They're interested in in uh, perhaps things uh, that might uh, be developing their mind further or keeping their mind active or those sorts of things. So I was very passionate about putting the arts on an equal footage with uh, more active forms of recreation because I think the arts and culture are a form of recreation in our community. So that was why I ran. I wanted to, um, I wanted to have that. Uh, get in front of folks. And um, I finished sixth out of six. Like I just, I squeaked in um, by a few hundred votes. And uh, then... uh, So so that was your first run, right? Yeah. yeah. So can you just tell us what that meant to you? Because um, regardless of how many votes you got in, the city has entrusted you. Was that, what was that celebration like? I'm just curious because that's an occasion that most people will never fully understand what it's like to have the community give you kind of the ball, give you that responsibility. Well, it's, it's a bit overwhelming, you, you know, that, that, uh, um, I, I wasn't sure, I really wasn't sure whether I'd be successful or not. And it was a bit overwhelming. And I, um, I was successful and it, it yeah, there's a yeah, there's a, an incredible feeling of of 
oh my gosh, what have, what have I done? Um, now I've, um, you know, who, who, who do I represent now? And that's interesting because you represent more than just because I, I think I got 6,800 votes, which is interesting because that was a lot of votes. Even compared to today, council members don't get elected with that many votes. But for some reason, it was a big election. And uh, I had 6,800 votes and, and was elected. And I thought, well, do I do I just represent those 6,800 people? What about all the people that didn't vote for me? And 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 you, you quickly go from um, realizing that you represent everybody. And, and it changes your, um, it changes you because you can't just stick with those issues you brought up when you were elected. You have to, you know, you have to think about other things. And, and here's the thing that, um, I'm offering this advice free to anybody who's thinking about running for, <laughs> for public office and for people who get involved and people who vote. You're not elected for what you know. You don't get elected because you know something, or you're good at something, or you're, um, you have a skill. That's not what you're elected for. The city hires, I think the city's got 400 or so employees, many of whom are experts in what they do. They are experts in sewage treatment. They are experts in engineering. They are exert, experts in design and building. They are experts in planning. They are experts... Uh, and some of the smartest people I've ever met work for our city and other cities. You're there, you're elected for your judgment. You're not elected because you've got a great idea on how to pave roads. Because let me tell you, <laughs> you don't know nothing, right? You're elected for your judgment. You have an unbelievably professional group of people who will say, um, we have a problem. We need to pave this road. Uh, here's our recommendation on how we do that. And you have you say, yes, that sounds good, or no, I don't want to spend the money doing that. But you're not, you're not there to have a bunch of good ideas. You're there to use your best judgment when very professional folks bring decisions for you. And 95% of the decisions you're going to make on city council have to do with the budget, and 95% of that is things you have to spend money on. You don't have a choice, right? You you might be able to get away with saying, well, do we really need to pave that road this year? Like if we didn't pave that road this year, we could pave this road or we could do this or maybe we could do that project. You get to tinker around the edges, but so much of what the city has to do, it's like a school district. You've got teachers, you have to pay them. You've got buildings, you got to keep them going. Okay, at the end of the day, you got this much. I'm putting up a an inch... <laughs> between my thumb and my finger. You've got this much that is discretionary that you can now do. Now go figure out what you want to do with that with that money. I mean, people, uh, I and I often read comments on Facebook where people are blasting away about the city this or the city that, and I'm thinking, oh, you have no idea. Like, somehow you think that when you get there, there's a pot of gold you get to spend on the things you think we should be spending money on. Yeah. It's just not that way. Can you tell us what it was like to run um either for council or for mayor um it's you've made comments uh in the in the news like writing letters to the editor just saying that like the viciousness the attack ads uh you, you seem to be against that and i think any um person who's not in politics would agree with you but there's something about the political arena that calls 
for for inhumane kind of approaches and not inhumane and violence, but inhumane and like you wouldn't do that to the person if you had to look them in the eyes and talk about it. Yeah. Can you tell us about that? Well, I think at a municipal level, it doesn't, it's not, not often that vicious. It can be. There's been certainly campaigns where uh, there's been a little of that. That's more the federal or the provincial where, where people are just, uh, they say awful, awful things. And they say not so much, well, they say them in awful ways. Like they can make anything you've said or done uh, make you sound like a, a complete freak. And I, I that kind of, I, I hate that. The sad reality is it's incredibly effective because it, it in fact energizes people. So the person who might see a political ad that said, you know, if you vote for me, I'm going to, you know, put a chicken in every pot and make sure every bicycle's got two wheels and I'm going to do all those wonderful things. You know, they yawn and say, okay, well, there's another political ad. But if they see an ad that says, were you aware that representative so-and-so, um, you know, squandered money on, you know, getting his toenails painted uh, at a, you know, exclusive spa in the south of Spain instead of doing his, I mean, whoa, okay, I, Okay, I, I, I understand that. That may, okay, okay, that guy's a bad guy. So those attack ads are very effective. And it's sad that we can't engage people long enough to tell them, you know, why they should vote for people. What we've done is now we're not advert, like people aren't spending money saying vote for me, they're spending money saying don't vote for him. Yeah. And that's, I think, just a sad commentary on where. Where, where we're at. So how did you approach going into the election? Like, what was it hard to sell? Like, Bud talked about how it was hard to sell himself because he's been a part of a team. Um, was that a challenge for you, or did your theater sort of help you kind of be more energized? Here's the reality about local government elections. 90% of the work that you need to do has already been done by the time you say, I want to run for city council. Because if you're not a person who's immediately recognized as doing good things in the community, if you're not a person that's already relatively well-known for something, um, you're, you're going to have a huge struggle because you'll be running against people who are well-known in the community. Because that's sort of a natural progression. For me, running for council was sort of a natural progression of my life. Certainly running for mayor was. I'd you know been very active and involved in the arts community and building community and doing all those things. And the next level up was running for city council and doing uh, things in a broader sense. And the next step was just an, a logical extension of that running for mayor. Um, if, if you're unhappy about something, and nobody really knows who you are, and you turn that into, well, I'm going to run for city council. I think it's great that you're going to do that. But your chances are much less than somebody who's running for council as a logical extension of who they are and what they've done. And then you've, you've brought up uh, Bud Mercer, and that's an example of that. Bud's uh, been involved in community development, in policing, and he took a very much a community development approach to policing, which meant he was involved in all kinds of different things in the community, and he was always around, and people always associated him with the community and policing and all of that. So Bud was extremely well-known 
when he took the opportunity to run for city council. And he was recognized as somebody who was committed to the community. And he had a background that people found uh, very compelling. Police? Oh, well, got to be a good guy. So let's, let's elect him. And, and those are the people that get elected, the people that the community looks at and says, oh, well, that seems logical. You know, I remember, oh, yeah, they were, you know, the director of this, and they were always on social media talking about that. And, and I already feel like I know who that person is. I can, I can trust them, and I'm, I'm going to elect them. So if you want to run for city council, and it, then you need to demonstrate to the community there's more to you than just running for city council, because that seems a bit self-serving, right? So I you have that. to... You have to kind of get out there and be doing things and be seen to be doing things and be seen to be doing things that aren't just about self-promotion, but seen to be doing things that are, in fact, making a difference in the community. And then you'll, it'll be a natural progression and you'll get elected. That's a beautiful way to put that. What were the differences to you in terms of your role from council to mayor? Because we talk about, we differentiate them, we say mayor and council. But for the average person, I don't know if they realize the duties, the responsibilities, the the role you play as a mayor in comparison to city council. Yeah, um, city councilor, you're part of a team. Um, and that team um, gets the information from uh, staff on decisions that need to be made, and you work together as a team to make those decisions. You work together as a team to plan um, what you need in the community in the coming years, and you work together as a team to kind of see that stuff through. The difference with the mayor is that the mayor is often the person setting the agenda for the coming years. So when I was first elected mayor, uh, I sat down and said, here's the things that, you know, besides keeping everything running, uh, here's the things that I think we need to be doing. And these are the things that I'd like staff to bring forward. So you get a chance to um, get a chance to set the agenda. So for me, it was, we have to get a swimming pool uh, going and one that's going to attract people to it, not just a little hole in the ground where people jump in and get wet and jump out. We need uh, something that's going to be an attraction for families. We need to keep it affordable, blah, 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 blah. So we built a wave pool and a, you know, competitive tank and all of those kinds of things. The Chilliwack Leisure Center. Yeah, yeah, wow. yeah. So that was number one. And, and this was all part of a planning process where staff had said, well, let's go to the community and ask them what they think is important. We needed, um, we needed extra ice in the community because our existing, um, uh, Coliseum was falling to, to the ground and we were losing bookings, uh, for hockey leagues into Abbotsford and other places. So we needed more ice in the community. Minor hockey was bursting at the seams. Um, kids were having to, you know, get their practice time at four in the morning, those sorts of things. So we needed more ice in the community. And interestingly, the third thing on that list was we needed uh, a cultural center. We needed a home for the community's culture. We had an art center at the time, but it was an old church and it was running down and um, it was bursting at the seams. It was busy seven days a week, uh, almost 24 hours a day. And we needed uh, a new home for the community's cultural core. And that was another project that we worked on. Interestingly, um, it was identified that where those things are located now, the swimming pool and the cultural center and the ice arena, were at Chilliwack's old fairgrounds. 
And that property was still home to the Chilliwack Exhibition. And the Chilliwack Exhibition actually had on title to that property, although the city owned it, um, the part of the when I think it was Isaac Kipp, one of the old timers, the pioneers in Chilliwack, uh, gave that property to the city. He said, only uh, if uh, the city has to make it available for two weeks every year for the Chilliwack Exhibition Society to have their uh, annual fall fair. And so uh, we were looking at that property and saying, this is a great place to locate community facilities, but we have to look after the fair. So what we settled on was building Chilliwack Heritage Park out by Lickman Road to become the new home of the Chilliwack Exhibition with proper facilities for animals and all of those kind of things. And that freed up that space so that we could then redevelop um, that area we now call the landing. So that was all part of work we were doing uh, with the Agricultural Society and with swim clubs and cultural groups and you name it, we were you know, having to piece all of that stuff together. That's so, so, sorry, that's just so beautiful to think that this person wanted that kept for that reason and yep. to see kind of the iteration of it come forward and us uh, try and support the community in new ways and like to be a person who used the leisure center and never thought about it, mm-hmm. to to have taken advantage of something that you helped bring about with community members in the city of Chilliwack, to have benefited from decisions that were made when I was just a little kid. It's just so kind of beautiful to see how local politics can sit, play such a personal role to so many people and they, they never even have to think about it. Well, it's, it, it's for me, it's, 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 it's great to drive around the community and to be able to say, oh, I remember all the uh, toing and froing we did on that. And I remember, you know, sitting down and, and making decisions on that. And I remember uh, conceptualizing the vision for this. And, and it, it gives you a real sense of um, awe as you drive around and you, you see those things. And, you know, we accomplished in nine years with when I was mayor just a ton of stuff. And I, I'd like to think we did that because we had a plan. I, I remember sitting down with each of the members of council when I was first elected saying, okay, what do you want to accomplish as a member of council? What's important to you? And let me tell you what I want to accomplish. And let's let's uh, talk about that. And I had that conversation with everyone. And um, that helped put together the plan because many of the things they had wanted were things that I thought should be on the agenda. And um, I remember talking with uh, my dear, dear friend, Mel Folkman. He was uh, he had just been elected to, to city council. And uh, he said, uh, oh, that's a lot. I said, well, yeah. He said, you're going to need nine years. And I said, yeah, and I'm going to need good people with me for nine years. So uh, he said, well, okay, I'll commit for three terms, if you will. And I said, yeah, okay. And we did. We both, uh, we, we, we both retired after three terms. And uh, both of us had said, uh, yeah, we got the things done we wanted to get done. And and I don't think the job should be yours forever just because you want it. I think you should have a list of things. And then people say, well, why did you, you could have run forever. Why did you quit? And I quit because I'd done the things I wanted to do. And I didn't want to have to, you know, I didn't think it was fair to sort of say, okay, now I want to have a new list of things. And so I thought, no, you know what? This is a This is a really good time to go out when you're, when they'll throw a party for you instead of be happy that you're gone. So yeah. uh, it was nice to, to leave on a high note. 
That is so fantastic to hear. Did you find any challenges during that time? Like you think of where like Bud talked about social media and how that kind of has really changed the relationship between like him and the constituents. And it's maybe not something that was on his radar as much as something he thought was going to impact him. Um, like when I guess you're planning to run, he wasn't thinking what kind of nonsense is going to be on this platform. Oh. So things have changed. I'm just interested, was there something equivalent to social media when you were leading the community? And what was it like? Because you're, I've heard um, that the role of mayor is kind of like to lead the, the conversation, to, to guide the conversation. What was that like as well? Well, uh I mean, I guess each mayor gets to decide in some respects how big or small a role they play. I know mayors uh, from across the province who sort of check in a couple of times a week and, and chair the meetings, and they have no more interest in wow. uh, in running things uh, as not. And, and I was a little more hands-on. I saw it as a full-time job, and I was there full-time. And I, I, the legislation doesn't specify anything. It just, you get to kind of make it up that you have legislative responsibilities, but you don't have, um, a mayor doesn't have as much authority as a lot of mayors would like, but you kind of earn that authority by, you know, making good decisions or, um, you know, being part of a team or bringing people along. So, uh, now I've forgotten completely what your question was. So but, social media was... Oh, it, social what, media. Oh, there was nothing equivalent to social media when I was mayor. I mean, there was media. And, um, you know, if we had a big issue, and there were a few in my time, um, it was the Vancouver media that, you you know, oh gosh, because they were ruthless. Uh, the local media, you could figure out most days how to get along with them or how to make things work with them, but there was no social media. When I saw uh, Facebook was just becoming a thing um, the year that I retired. In fact, I think I signed on to Facebook in 2009, which was my was the year I retired. And it would be my undoing today. I don't know, frankly, how people manage with with social media and politics. It is just horrendous what... Um, what impact it has. And it's sad. It's very sad. And I had to, I mean, it, it, it magnifies everything. So as a politician, you're looking at Facebook and you're reading it and, it, and, and you'll read something on a, on a local do-gooder site, as I call them, and you'll think, oh my God, the whole community must think that because you've seen it on that site. And they don't. It's a small minority, a vocal minority of opinion that's reflected there. And I actually had a conversation with a, a member of council not that long ago as I overheard them talking about, oh, did you read this on this particular Facebook site? And I said, you know, you're going to do yourself a huge favor and understand that that is not reality. And the more, uh, the more you allow that to rule your decision-making, the, the worst decisions you're going to make. You know who you are. You were elected by the whole community to make decisions. Don't take what you read there as being reflective of what the whole community thinks, because it just isn't. And he said, yeah, I know. It's so easy to just get wrapped up in it. He said, you can't let yourself. And and that's my advice. I mean, social media is not the world. There are people on there who want you to believe 
that they're speaking with incredible authority, but they're not. They just aren't. It's a small uh, percentage of very loud voices, and you can't govern trying to make that group of people happy because guess what? They ain't never going to be happy because you might solve this problem. They'll have another one ready for you the very next minute. Uh, what they want is the attention. I'm going to be honest and say I was one of those people in 2010, 2011. Things weren't going well in my life. And to cause shenanigans with people, whether it was just a debate on Facebook over whether this is true or that is true, like just having that, like somebody says something and then you get to respond and you get to argue with them. There's something when your life kind of sucks or your day isn't going the way you want to, that that is your, your little dose of adrenaline, that that's your, yeah. your kind of going out and experiencing the world for the day is yeah. just through this app. It really desensitizes you to how that makes other people feel and what the experience people who read it on the other side feel. Yeah, it's, I, I, I despair when I see some of the things uh, written and um, I try to stay away from that. There was a time when I might have responded to something and then I, you just, you know, you come back an hour later and there's a firestorm uh, and, and most people not even understanding what it is that the conversation's about. So I, I try to stay away from that. And for me, Facebook is, is holiday pictures and, uh, um, and accomplishments that uh, other people have made and you can uh, make them proud. And every now and then I rage on a bit on Twitter, but... <laughs> <laughs> That's a, that seems to be more of a political uh, format. But I, I couldn't imagine being involved in local government or any kind of elected official right now with what Facebook and, and social media has done. Um, it's, it's made it so difficult. And, and it'll just harden people, right? It just will harden people. Instead of bringing people together, which is what we need more and more and more, it's going to just drive people apart. So, uh, you know, I, I have had words of counsel for many people who are elected about social media. And, and you know, I think uh, currently our mayor uh, is on social media, but I think he handles it very well. He just uses it as an opportunity to say, here's what's going on, doesn't respond. Yeah. Uh, and that's the way it, I think it has to be. I, I think you have to just sort of let it be a one-way communication. You get to communicate with others yeah. about stuff. I mean, even even in the in the blithe world of of uh, little theater, like community theater, uh, sometimes our social media feed has to be. You know, we have to be uh, cognizant of the fact that it's a place where some people want to just cause trouble. Yeah. And I'm I'm so glad I missed it. <laughs> I'm just so glad I missed it. Fair enough. So I also think that you're, even though you're not in a political position now, you act as a steward for our, at least our municipal politics for sure. Potentially, if you're speaking with people like Kelly Padden, you're playing a larger role, but you steward the community like Bud mentioned that you recommended that he consider running. And I think that that's such a, we're lucky that you did that because maybe that wasn't on his radar if you hadn't have said something and that you talk to people who potentially want to run and, and help them see what the role is and, and what it would look like if they were to run. I'm just interested, is that a difficult responsibility? Is it something that you enjoy doing? No, I, not at all. In fact, um, I have uh, on occasion encouraged a number of people to consider um, running for council and have sought them out or they search me out and ask my opinion. Um, and 
uh, no, I, I enjoy that because I, I feel like maybe I've accomplished something if I can pass the message on about what the job is and what it isn't, that it is about judgment. It is about being able to disseminate fairly complex information fairly quickly and understand what's the right thing to do. Um, and, um, and it means um, engaging in people in the community and being a part of the community and really understanding community development and what that is. So I absolutely actively search people out if I think, you know, you would be really good at this. And I'm, I'm batting almost uh, a thousand, I think, on people that I've encouraged to run that have run and they've been elected um, and, um, and supported people. I, I don't often um, endorse people. I, I, for some reason, I felt like that was a bridge too far. I shouldn't be endorsing people. But in the last municipal election, uh, I did. Uh, I uh, felt very strongly. Um, and before anybody else had announced they were running for mayor, uh, Ken uh, asked if I would support him. And I said, you know what, I would. I think you'd do a really good job. I think you have the right temperament. I don't know if anybody else is running or not. I have no idea, but um, I think you could do an excellent job. And so I did. I publicly ad- endorsed him, and, and that was uh, sort of unprecedented for me. A- and did the same for Bud, uh, because I believed very strongly that he was— it's not to say I wouldn't endorse uh, others or feel like other people uh, weren't, uh, weren't good, but I, I just felt like Bud was a voice that we needed to have on our council with his experience in um, policing, especially, and his experience in leadership in his roles with the RCMP, I thought he'd be a very important voice. Do you enjoy that more than leading the community as like a mayor, or is it just another iteration of being involved in the community? Because you kind of get to help people see what they can bring to the table that maybe there wasn't on. Like Bud kind of said, like, I, I don't know, like, uh, like there was some trepidation, but he talked about how he can't, he doesn't want to think he's all that and go in and be like, I could be council and I could be mayor. He needed someone to come forward and kind of say, you know, you'd be great for the job. Yeah, and Bud is selling himself a little short. He was, um, I think it was something he was considering at about the same time that I said you should consider this um, because, um, you know, he knew he had things to offer and he also knew where there were deficits that needed to be uh, addressed. And so, um, yeah, I mean, Bud's a very humble guy despite having a resume that... um, I, I remember, uh, Bud will hate me for this, but I remember one of the all-candidates meetings. They introduced Bud, and uh, and as if being a um, the former off commanding officer of the Chilliwack Detachment wasn't enough, then it was, you know, and I, I get the, the ranks mixed up in the RCMP, but then it's moving up to uh, inspector uh, in charge of crimes in E-Division and you, there was kind of a ooh in the crowd, and then it was, uh, and then he was a, a this in in charge of whatever, and there was another ooh, and then oh, and then his last post was assistant commissioner with the RCMP in charge of security for the 2010 Olympic Games, and everybody, oh, and I, I literally saw ever people at the thing all scribbling down like. Uh, okay, we've got one. <laughs> I mean, but that's the kind of thing I was talking about before, that, that that's the pedigree 
that, you know, Bud brings to the table. But, you know, there are other people would bring a pedigree if, and I'm not promoting them as uh, council candidates, but if somebody came up and said, you know, I've been the executive director of this uh, do-gooder society for 25 years and and provided social housing to this and am a director on this agency and this agency and I'm the, you know, the president of this nonprofit, you know, people are going to go, oh, yeah, I know her. Yeah, her, her name's in the paper all the time. Yeah, 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 tick. Yeah. That's the way politics at that level is done in Chilliwack. You need to, uh, you can't sort of, and I've, you, know, you can, but I've seen so many occasions and when I was running certainly where, you know, there was an issue came up and it, maybe it was a rezoning on a particular piece of property and a neighborhood was mad about that and, and or a planning exercise and the neighborhood was mad about that. And the leader of that little neighborhood group started spouting off at every council meeting for the next several weeks and the election was in the And now I'm going to run for council and I'm going to straighten everything out. And they would run for council and they would finish, you know, because that's not an issue that's resonating with the community. It's resonating with that small group. And that's Facebook. That's, that's what Facebook is. That's somebody standing up and saying, oh, this is outrageous. And I can remember being on council and thinking, oh, I wonder if they'll get elected. They sure got a big mouth. You know, maybe people will vote for them. And they don't. Yeah. And it's the same thing as Facebook. That's just a big mouth that's roaring. And, and you can't allow it to distract you from what, what you need to do. Yeah. I'm interested in your thoughts. I've interviewed Bud Mercer. I'm looking at having Mayor Henry Braun on, potentially Mayor uh, Popov, um, and continuing this until the elections come of trying to highlight people, understand where they're coming from, their background, give people at least the opportunity to learn more about the person in a more holistic way. Yeah. I'm just interested. Do you have any thoughts on how I could do this? I'm always thinking of how I can improve. Like uh, one of the questions I wanted to start with with Bud was – is there anything you would have done differently after your four years of being on council? And that might not be a revolutionary question, but it's one that I don't see when we're at a, when we're doing an, an all candidates meeting yeah. of like, what mistakes did you make and what would you have done differently? Do you have any thoughts on how I can make sure that I'm doing the best I can as the host to ask potential guests on to make sure that I'm being fair to people? No, I think it's a, an excellent question of an incumbent is, okay, you've had four years at it. What would you do different, differently? And I mean, it's a, something they'll have to be very thoughtful about. Um, I, I, uh, I think just asking them that is the, the, is a great question. I think another really good question is, you know, you went into this, uh, with some expectations. Clearly, this is what I want to get done. What have, what have you, what have you gotten done and why? And what haven't you gotten done? What are the things that you really wanted to do, but you found you just can't get there yet? Um, and what are those things? And why haven't why haven't those things materialized for you? What are you still wanting to do? Uh, are good questions. Asking somebody why they want to run, I don't know if anybody's going to answer that. I mean, because there's a piece of it that says, because it's it's a really cool job, and and you get to be. Uh, and, and everybody knows you and you get to be a little bit famous and it's, it's, uh, you know, it can be really fun. You can't, you can't say that, but it's why, uh, it's part of the reason we run right. because it's, it is fun. It's, it, there's an aspect of being recognized. There's an aspect for me today, even where, you know, I'll go somewhere and somebody will say, Hey, weren't you the, say, Oh yeah, I was. Yeah. 
you were a bum and we should have thrown you out years ago. No, they've never said that. But, um, but I think that's a, an interesting aspect. And what surprised people about the job, something that, that uh, they haven't expected. Like you never knew this was going to be uh, part of it, something that's completely unexpected in terms of the job, either good or bad. I I um, known Henry for a number of years, Henry Braun, and uh, worked with him on a transportation advisory thing years ago before he was in politics. Uh, he was, um, I think he was vice president with Southern Rail at the time. So he was uh, very involved in railway transportation. And I always thought, you know, this guy's smooth. He'd be good politician. And I think I even asked him at the time, and I've interviewed Henry, and he's a really good interview, but I, I think I even asked him at the time, you know, have you ever considered politics? And he says, ah, as soon as these folks aren't doing what I think they should be, maybe I will, but and I don't that, know. That's when he ran. And that's when he ran. And, and uh, you know, he, he's, I, I don't know his politics, I can guess, like his big P politics, I can guess. Uh, but I think he's doing a really effective job uh, in Abbotsford. It, like that, what he was doing during the flooding, um, he had some good. Uh, he had some good advice around communications at that time, and that was uh, uh, he did an excellent job. So, yeah. my my concern is always that there are some who run with the best of intention, uh, then there's others that run for the name, for the fame, for the being well known, and I don't I don't want to promote those people, and so I think that's where I struggle as the host is to make sure that I'm having on the people who aren't really looking for the popularity that they're, uh, cause like looking into mayor Henry Braun, like I assume most people don't know that his family traveled here during world war two and lived in a chicken coop or a chicken farm coop for the yeah. first months of him living here, that his father was spat on when they were biking somewhere for yeah. him, for the color of his skin. And so I don't like, that is something that interests me about him beyond his politics, your involvement with the players guild and your commitment to community. It makes you interesting beyond the politics. Yeah. And so I think that's my struggle as the host is I want to have those people on who aren't just interesting because they're a politician. They're interesting because they're a good person in the community, like you said. It's the journey that they, that the journey from where they were to becoming that yeah. person that they are today is, is always a very compelling story. Yeah. And so that's, yeah, that's, I think, the story that people don't often get to hear. And I can tell you, this is my bit of wisdom. I think that most people who go into politics at a level where they're going to be recognized, um, they start out without thinking, oh, it's, it's kind of cool, but it's not why they run. But if they stay in it long enough, it's why they stay in it because it's, I think they start believing that they're the only person who could do that job. And there's examples of politicians in the lower mainland who just are there forever. And I don't, I don't know whether that's, uh, I used to joke about a particular mayor from the, uh, to the west of us who was there for a very long time that the reason he, uh, kept getting elected is he never did anything. He never made any mistakes. <laughs> so, because he didn't, you know, he, his, uh, he accomplished tremendous things, but he never talked about them. He never bragged about things. He went to everybody's funeral that was important. So he had a huge personal network, but he was never seen as doing things because he never wanted to be seen doing the wrong thing. So he was very quiet about his accomplishments and he was mayor for 35 years. So, and I, I think, you know, I used to joke it's because he never did anything, but it's because he never, um, 
he never sort of blasted away at all his accomplishments. He was always just, you know, the the guy who was a steady hand at the tiller, that sort of thing. But I think if you're there too long, it's not a good thing. It's not a good thing for your community. It doesn't give you a chance to to look at different visions and to create uh, new directions and that sort of thing. Just like how you have one party or the other to kind of form, and it's kind of like a, a refreshment. Like many people, by the time Stephen Harper were done, was that we were just done looking at his face. Like we were just yeah, ready for change. Absolutely. And uh, and then Justin Trudeau, he's young, yeah. it's vibrant, it's energy, and it's, oh, yeah. we've got this new kind of culture. It's the same, it sounds like, with being involved in, in mayor and council. It's just a different way of sort of leaving the position. Yeah, I, but you know, in Chilliwack, gosh, I can't remember. I, well, I can remember the last person to get unelected was uh, Stuart McLean, was a city councilor, and he wasn't unelected because you know people didn't like him. He was unelected because somebody really, really popular in the community with a huge background in community development and was so well thought of, he just became the, you know, oh yeah, that person. Oh, we got to have them. Oh, we've got to have them. Oh, we got to have, oh, I didn't vote for Stuart. And, and so it wasn't that he'd done anything wrong. It's just somebody came along that was, uh, you know, and I can't remember who it was, but um, who sort of beat, beat him out for a seat. And, uh, it's really hard to get unelected in Chilliwack. Really hard. It doesn't happen very often. And um, so, you know, as long as you keep your nose clean and keep it fairly close to the grindstone and, and uh, don't get in too much trouble, you can, uh, you can stay. It's very hard to, to, to like if all six people were running, uh, it's very hard to break in. I think this this time in local government, there's one person retiring, at least one retiring. Yeah. So um, I think the other five people, remaining people, won't have any trouble at all getting reelected mm-hmm. because they haven't done anything wrong. I mean, I, they haven't led the community in a bad direction or been associated with scandal or anything like that. I think, uh, uh, you know, it's pretty tame, our elections here that locally. They don't seem to swing back and forth the way they do in in provincial politics. So it's, I think, like four months to the upcoming election. Is, are people getting ready now? Like, I'm just curious as to, you get to kind of see behind the curtain what's going on. Are people getting into campaign mode, reaching out to people? Is this the time or is it closer to the election? What is the sort of process? It's October, right, that the elections take place? Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. People are, are getting ready now. Okay. Like, there are people who are sort of putting their feelers out and seeing, you know, well, you know, I was thinking about. Um, I mean, I, I always, I always think if you're if you're if you know you're going to run, let people know good and early because then when whenever they do a story about the next person who's announced they're running, they always put your name in it. So they say, you know, uh, uh, Clint Hames has announced today that he's running for a city council. He'll join Aaron Pete, who's also announced that uh, last February that he was running as well. So every you get the benefit of every new announcement because they always include the list of people that are running. So I always, you know, some people can get too cagey and too coy about it, and uh, and it, you know, if everybody knows you're running, just tell them you're running. If um, if it's really a decision you're having to make, um, then 
that's okay. But most of the time, well, you know, I'll, I'll have to go and check with this and my family and my blah, blah, blah. And you know they're, they're going to be running again. You, do you uh, know why they do that? Do you know? Do you think it's like an enjoyment of like getting asked the question and having a secret? Or where does that come? Because Bud said the same thing. He was like, I'll have to see if people want to support me or not. And it was like, I th- like, I don't see why you wouldn't run. There's nothing to discourage you. Well, I think there's probably... Uh, lots of th- reasons. I'm thinking back to me. I think, you, I mean, first and foremost, y- you want to be coy about it so that a whole bunch of people say, you've got to run. We really like what you're doing. You know, you want you want that kind Stop of affirmation. Um, and hopefully by saying, by being coy, maybe you'll get a bunch of people say, oh, you've got to run. You know, don't be, you know, don't be silly. We'll, we'll support you. Um, maybe that's part of it. I think the um, that I've got a secret, which means I've got a little more knowledge than you do. So there's a little, you know, feeling of, you know, that secret and I got a little power here and, um, and attention you get, I don't know. Um, but it's easy for me to say it in a position where I don't have to worry about it. Much harder if you're in that position and having to worry about it. Right. What would you like people to take away from your story? Because you've been so involved in the community in so many different ways. Like I find when you talked about the Players Guild, I just find that so inspirational because I do think that um, when we look at like a, a Townsend Park or a community park, we expect the community members to be able to use that. But we don't always see ourselves represented in the cultural center. So I just, I see you as this this steward for our community that maybe now people aren't aware of the involvement you have in the community in the same way but that you still care so much and so I'm just interested what do you think people can take away from your story well I think what I learned in this time that I've been here is that the road to success in building something like a community or a cultural center something as small as a cultural center or as broad as a community or even broader as a country, the road to success is about including more people, not less. That the secret to being successful at anything you try to do is to include everyone who's going to be impacted by what you're trying to do as much as possible. And that the biggest life lesson for me that I've learned, and it's taken a long time and I'm still learning it, is everybody has a gift to share. Everybody has something to contribute. And sometimes it's really hard to find with people. But the more you try to do that, the more they'll feel included and valued. It's just too easy to dismiss people. It's too easy to push them aside. I mean, I I wish I could say I haven't pushed anybody aside and I haven't excluded people because I have, but um, I try not to, and I try to 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 see value in everyone and to try to find the gift that somebody's trying to give in every situation. And if we did that on a personal level, and we do that on a broader level, on a community level, if we're doing that as a cultural center, and we're saying, okay, this cultural center, we need to highlight the gifts that are in this community. How do we do that? Not necessarily highlight the gifts of people from other communities, although that can be a part of it. What we're trying to do is highlight the artistic gifts that people have in this community and share them and find value in them. How do we do that? If we start there with everything we do, 
we're going to be better off. So the so the word is inclusion. So it's hard when we're being asked to include people we haven't usually included in our lives or our communities. It's really hard. But let me tell you, the secret is doing so and finding their gifts and allowing them to be shared. Then we're a better community, much better community. The road to hell is paved with exclusion, with saying, this is a group that belongs here and this is a group that belongs there and that, and, and, and will separate everybody. That's a road to hell. The road to building a really sustainable and healthy community starts with finding everyone's gifts and demanding, in fact, that they share it. I'll tell you, the, the philosophy of my business, and it was an interesting one, because we had typically supported people in the kind of work that I was doing that were intellectually disabled. There were lots of horrible labels that they were given. Um, but the common thread was an intellectual disability that made it more difficult for them to participate in the life of a community. Uh, some of it was because they were discriminated against. Some was because they didn't have the intellectual capacity to, to contribute at a level that typically people did. Our response to that in the olden days was that we looked after those folks. We trained them very well and others to be passive receivers of our service. We trained their passes, passes, you know, <laughs> the passiveness in them. And with my agency, my company, we sat down together, the brain trust and said, there's something wrong with that. We should be demanding and expecting that each one of the people we support share their gift with the community. We should be demanding of them, we should have an expectation that they make a contribution, however small, instead of this constant uh we'll look after you, you're not expected to make a contribution. We changed that and with, with our agency and said, everybody makes a contribution. Our job is to figure out what gift it is that they can share, and we make them share it. And our expectation, uh, one of our value statements was higher expectations yield higher results. And we expected everyone to participate. And we had people in with very limited intellectual capacity, making contributions well beyond what they or anyone thought possible. Why? Because that was our expectation. We stopped this notion that just because you have a disability or just because you are in this demographic, you passively accept our support and service. No, we expect from you that you make a contribution. Tell us how we can help. And that's I think that philosophy is my personal philosophy. And you said it really well in the beginning when you talked about your mother and you and how what your life was like and how you had there was an expectation you placed on yourself to take advantage of those things that were out there to give you support so that you could do something. And that uh, I think that translates into what I'm saying, which is that you know, we have to find people's gifts, and make it possible for them to share them. And in fact, 
demand that they share them, have expectations on people. But we do that by telling them they have value and by including them, and then they want to. That is incredibly beautiful. I couldn't agree more when I talk about how we talk about uh, homeless populations. I think it's the error that I see some make when we're sitting down with a person who's vulnerable and we say, uh, oh, do you want to get into treatment? Do you want to get this resource or that resource? It's like, why would you want to be clean? Like, why would you want to be healthy? What What is your life going to be? when you get to put all of this behind you. And I think that's where we forget to ask people, what would your life look like if it was exactly what you wanted it to be? What like what is your potential? Because maybe you're an artist, maybe you're an entrepreneur, maybe you're interested in the law or medicine. What can you bring to the table that we would all benefit from if you were to reach your full potential, whatever you want that to be? But I've seen um, as a native court worker, I've seen my colleagues just go, we're going to get you into treatment. And it's like, but why would they succeed at that if they have nothing that's motivating them to get done the treatment so they can go on to be whatever contributing person that they can be in whatever measure works for them. It doesn't have to be that they go become a doctor, although let's try and set the standard higher so that they don't think of themselves as small and minute. And I think that that's maybe the crisis that we're in right now is so many people don't feel like they contribute anything. They don't think their vote matters. They don't think their opinion matters. They We've gotten into this mindset of we don't have a lot to contribute. Well, and we have to find ways to add value to those folks so that they want to contribute. One of the more interesting uh, uh, enlightenment moments in my life was I had a brother uh, who was older than me, and he spent his adult life living and working in the downtown east side of Vancouver. At times, he was um, an addict who was very struggled very much with his life. At other times, he was trying to help uh, other addicts. Um, he lived and died in the downtown east side. Um, at one point, I, when I was mayor, I used to go and visit with him down there and, and um, offer support and just try to include him more in my life. And he said something very interesting to me. He said, you know, you look around as a, an outsider, you look around the downtown east side here, and, and you look with scorn and you look with judgment. And he said, what you have to understand is, on an emotional level, for the people that are here, this is a healthier environment than the one that you want for them. And I had to think about that. And he explained it by saying, in here, there's no judgment. The people who are addicts on the street, surviving day to day, see value in the other people who are addicts on the street, surviving every day. They're friends. They help each other. They support each other. Uh, they help with uh, tarps so that people can be uh, out of the rain. They help with clothing. They help each other. They support each other. And they don't judge. They include each other. On an emotional level, this is very healthy for people here. You take folks out of this environment and put them in your environment. Nobody wants them there. They don't belong. They have no sense of being included or valued at all. Why would they trade that? Why would anybody 
and you say, you know, well, we'll put them into treatment. What does post-treatment look for folks? They're uh, away from people they know. They're in environments they don't particularly find safe. There's, they're not valued. They're not included. They're an ex-addict who's struggling. Which environment would make more sense? So that's why I say it's about inclusion. It's about finding ways to value people, finding ways to include them, finding ways to welcome people into the community, regardless of what they're bringing, instead of and stopping the judgment and stopping all of those other things. Easier said than done, and I appreciate that. But um, don't expect anybody who's living in a tent city to jump on the on housing because in that tent city it's people they know in many cases people they trust in many cases people who don't judge them and people who include and value them as opposed to moving into a housing where they don't know anybody they're not sure about the people around them they don't know uh, they certainly don't necessarily feel valued so it's on an emotional level it's very difficult so um, we have a lot of lessons to learn about, uh, you know, it's, it's easier to embrace people with minor differences. It's very much harder to start expanding those margins I talked about and saying, okay, how do we, how do we include, include these folks as well? That is incredibly well said. Um, can you tell people uh, you also do Chill TV, um, and I think you're coming out with another season. Would you mind sharing that with us? No, listeners? no, not at all. Um, uh, Chill TV is a local uh, online streaming uh, television station, and they're doing some pretty interesting and sophisticated work. They've got a regular news show, and they um, have a kind of current affairs uh, department. Uh, I've helped them out with uh, interviews with local politicians during election seasons and, and hosted uh, evenings when the elections are on. And they asked me some time ago if I would do a, a talk show and interview some of those politicians, which I did. It was a, I think we did 24 episodes of something called Hames Hot Mike, and I interviewed politicians. Not unlike what, what you're doing, only shorter versions of that. And uh, more recently, uh, I uh, said, you know, we should be, uh, we should look at some issue-focused shows, and I'd like to get another uh, perspective. So I asked Paul Henderson, who's the uh, editor of the Chilliwack Progress, to join me as a co-host. And we've been uh, uh, taping some shows uh, that are more issues-focused. One of the issues that we've uh, taped is uh, talking about uh, uh, crime and public safety. In the community, and Aaron, thank you for being a guest and bringing your perspective as a lawyer and court worker to that show. We did a show on the agricultural land reserve and and housing prices, and is there a uh, is there a context that we can look at that shows that having the land reserve is a benefit on one side, but it's certainly raising the price of land on the other. Um, and that was a very interesting show uh, that should be out very soon. Uh, we did a show on housing. Uh, and uh, looked at uh, affordable housing and what are the issues involved in affordable housing and some very, very uh, cool guests for that, including a gentleman named Keyshawn Roy, who is uh, running for city council in Vancouver. He's a housing advocate in Vancouver and uh, has a long history of working in government 
in affordable housing, CMHC, and places like that. So he brought a very interesting perspective along with Danielle Beausoleil, who is a local realtor and someone involved in a number of housing projects. So uh, that those uh, that series of interviews along with a couple of others we have planned, one on inclusion, uh, one that I'm really excited about putting together uh, on talking about some of the issues we talked about in terms of inclusion. That will be coming up. I believe the first ones are coming out in uh, mid-June. So I'm not sure when this airs, but uh, it uh, is when we'll be doing that. Brilliant. Uh, can you tell people how they can find you on social media platforms, Twitter? No. no. <laughs> uh, I, I'm on, uh, I have a Facebook account. And uh, it's just my name, Clint Hames. And uh, I have a Twitter account, which is just uh, at Clint Hames with no space. Uh, and uh, that's the only social media. I think, I think I actually do have an Instagram, maybe. I don't know. I started to get lost in all that stuff. But I also, uh, one of the things we haven't talked about, and I would, I would be remiss if I didn't, is that uh, one of the coolest things I get to do these days is uh, play guitar in a rock band. Tell us about and, that. And uh, uh, the name of the band is Judy Tuesday. And uh, people thought it might be an homage to the Rolling Stones song, uh, Ruby Tuesday, but it it really isn't. Uh, the leader of our band, a uh, keyboard and arranger, is named Judy, and we practiced on Tuesdays. So it just sort of fell in, oh, that'd be a cool name. But we've been uh, really uh, having a lot of fun. We started as a, as a pit orchestra for a British Music Hall review and uh, said we really enjoyed playing together. And then we started getting bookings and people said, hey, could you come and do this and could you come and do that? So we do a lot of 1960s British invasion and American uh, rock music. And so we're, we're just booked like crazy. So here I am uh, approaching my old age, uh, having to play rock and roll in smoky bars. <laughs> and it's, it's kind of fun. I got to admit uh, we're having a ball. So, um, we, uh, we play a lot of private events where people want uh, some music. And so, you know, what a joy. Uh, I've always played guitar, um, and sometimes more seriously than others, but imagine, uh, into my sixties and, and, uh, living the life of a rock star. It's a, it's a lot of fun. So. Yeah. Where, uh, can people book you? Can they hear your music? Oh, they- yeah. Uh, actually, you can check uh, out our Facebook page, which is uh, at Judy Tuesday. And uh, we have a website, judytuesday.ca. And there's examples and samples of our music all over the uh, uh, all over the face or all over the website. And uh, I th- think we have a YouTube thing, but I'm, you know, it's not my area, but I think, uh, we have a YouTube channel with a bunch of uh, clips of shows and things like that. So uh, all you need to know is you can find on there. So That's amazing. Did you, uh, was this kind of came out of nowhere for you, being able to produce music in this way? Well, it's uh, it came out of the theater experience. I mean, I've, uh, over the last 40 or 50 years that I've been involved in doing community theater and university theater and some professional theater, um, we'd been producing these Music British Music Hall reviews over the years, we called them British Nights, and their combination of sort of comedy skits, and they were often old uh, British Music Hall uh, songs, Vera Lynn and those kinds of things. And we used to attract this audience of older folks who used to love and love to come and listen to the old songs and and drink beer and have a nice pub lunch and go home. And it was a great thing for the Theatre Guild to do. Um, and we did them for 25, 30 years. We were... Do- we were doing them. Uh, then they kind of, when we 
built the new cultural center, there wasn't really an environment for them, and we'd stopped for a couple of years, and then we figured out a way to do them again. And uh, we were sitting around strategizing, and somebody said, well, um, you know, we got to haul out some of that old music. And I said, you know, guys, (laughs) the music that we think is new from the 1960s is really old music, and we should do something that's kind of like a have the theme of it being more the British invasion, the 1960s music that, you know, that's people 60 years old, right? So I'll bet they'd really enjoy it. So it meant going away from sort of a piano as the central uh, music for the show into a, a pit orchestra. And I knew all that music from my youth. I played it all. So I said, you know, I could probably strum it out on a guitar and I knew a bass player and I knew a drummer and a our regular keyboard player for the British Knights said, well, that would be fun. Why don't we put a little combo together and do it? And so the next three that we did all featured this combo, and we've just had a ball from there. And we we sort of were willing to kind of let it die, but then, you know, this group said, hey, could you guys come and play, and could you guys come and play, and could you? And now, uh, this year, we're, I don't know, we have 20 or 30 dates booked between now and uh, September. Oh, my gosh. And, uh, yeah, and, and they make you stay up till 10 o'clock at night. It's awful. <laughs> so it's, uh, but we're, we're having fun. That's incredible. And the Players Guild, I think you have some plays coming up as well. Um, we have a show coming up. We just finished a couple of productions. We just did uh, Calendar Girls, which is a wonderful uh, show, and it was sold out and very well received. And we did a show for uh, a drama festival uh, that's held every year. And that show was called Marjorie Prime, and that just finished. And it won four different awards uh, in this festival. It's an adjudicated festival. Um, And so that was very successful. And in the fall, we're doing a a political comedy called The Outsider. And it uh, was originally scheduled for for, uh, November 2020, which would have been interesting because it coincided with the American election. And it's about, uh, I won't give away too much, but... Uh, there's a candidate who should not be a candidate because he's just not uh, prepared enough to do that, uh, who gets talked into being a political candidate in a very high political office. And the play is about trying to polish the edges off this guy and get him in a, in a position of being a candidate. It was just sort of reminiscent of something that went on in 2020 in the U.S. I can't remember exactly what, but uh, so it would have been, uh, it would have been fun, but that'll be in, uh, I think uh, early November 2022. Is that where we are now? Yes, yeah. we are. Yeah. That is absolutely amazing. Clint, I really appreciate you being willing to uh, to share your perspective on what community looks like, how we develop, and how we can bring people together. Because I think that's the message we need to hear more of when we talk about uh, people aren't voting, people aren't getting involved, people are complaining about issues. The first step is to figure out what role you can play. And you've been willing to play that role to step up in moments and uh, be the voice of the community, but also to see the gems in our community and put them forward into positions where they can make a difference. And I think that that role maybe goes under-recognized of saying like, hey, you know what, I think you could bring something to the table in this role and our community would be better off because so many people think their opinion doesn't matter. And so they'd never think to say to someone, you would play such a beautiful role in our community and that would be amazing. And I think some people have trouble being willing to say that someone else can bring something that maybe they can't or um, 
because it takes away from them. There's a fear of saying something nice about someone else because then maybe it doesn't say something about nice about me. Or there's always that fear that people have of speaking up and saying something good about another. And I think you just set an amazing example of working for the community your whole life and finding ways to include others. And I think that that's just so inspiring for other people. Well, you know, Chilliwack has a few warts and foibles, but I have to tell you, my experience um, in not having lived other places, but certainly been everywhere across this country and politically been in many other places and looked at things that are happening politically and looked at the way other communities are uh, governed and looked at the way other communities have developed. And we are just so fortunate here. We have no idea, I don't think, on a general basis, what an amazing community this is. Uh, it's well-governed. It doesn't suffer the... Um, the backs and forwards of places that we can look at to the West where there's political confrontation at every council meeting. We uh, also have some of the best facilities. Um, every time this city has done something for the last 25 years, the, the theory and philosophy has been, let's do the best we can. Because we, we owe it to our community to not cheap out. Let's do the best we can. And we have things like pump tracks and curling rinks and cultural centers that are the envy of other communities. And uh, we have an amazing place here. And I'm not sure that everyone understands how lucky we are. Well, again, it's not luck. It's, it's, uh, it's good planning and it's good fortune. Yeah, there's lots of things that we could improve. And let's hope we all work together to do that. But boy, uh, I can't think of another place I'd rather live. I just can't. This is such a wonderful part of the world. And it's people like you, Aaron, I think, and let me say thank you, uh, that keep it that way because your voice is out there talking about things that need to be talked about. And your voice is out there uh, setting example for people that you might represent, that you unknowingly represent, in saying, I can achieve something with my life. And um, I'm really uh, excited about the things that you're doing. And let me be the first to say, you might consider uh, putting your name forward at some point in the future for politics. I think you'd do an excellent job because you understand what a great community is. Absolutely. I really appreciate the kind words. I'd be more than happy to moderate the debates, but I don't uh, think I have the personality for such a an important role. But I love that people like yourself are willing to put your, your name forward and to see where the community can develop and grow and, and what's needed. And so I really appreciate you being willing to take the time. This is the first time out of the podcast studio for me in the while. Uh, so I appreciate you being willing to take the time and uh, share such an amazing story. My pleasure. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you. How was that? We just did two hours and 40 minutes. Good. 